The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. And welcome to Broken Silicon, a computer gaming and hardware podcast. I'm your host, Tom, and I will let my esteemed guest introduce himself. All right. Thanks, Tom. Uh, my name is Daniel Nenny. I'm a longtime semiconductor professional, uh, father of four. I live here uh, right outside of Silicon Valley. I've been here most of my life. And in the last 10 years, I've started writing and documenting my experiences throughout the semiconductor industry. Uh, I started in the early 1980s, which was a, an interesting time. And uh, now we've you know, made a huge transformation, a couple different transformations. So there really is a lot, a lot to write about. What would you say, I mean, just thinking here based on what you said, uh, the biggest difference between and maybe there's a few you want to mention between the semiconductor industry in the 1980s. And I mean, now, I mean, what, 40 years later, <laughs> 36 uh, for me, uh, I got married right out of college. So uh, my marriage anniversary and my work anniversary is the same thing. So it's easier to remember. Uh, when I first came into the business, uh, computer companies really drove the semiconductor industry. So these were mini computers. So before mini computers, we had mainframes, these big things that were in you know the buildings mm -hmm. hiding somewhere. Mini computers were a little more portable. So when I was in college, we used mini computers to learn how to program and do computer engineering. So there were IBM 360s, HP, Data General, Digital Equipment, those are the four big vendors. But those guys made their own chips. So they drove yeah. the semiconductor industry. And you, know, you only had one mainframe for a company where many computers were spread around. So there was much, many more sh you know, silicon chips uh, to be found uh, throughout your building. So that was kind of the, the birth of the semiconductor industry into the mainstream you know, markets. And they all had their own fabs too most of the time, didn't they? They all did. In fact, my first job was at a fab uh, here in Silicon Valley making uh, chips for a computer company. And it was just the way it was. Uh, you had no other choice. And it was viewed as a competitive advantage if you were making your own chips. So they made mm -hmm. their own CPUs. They made their own IO chips, everything. They did their own. And, and back then, CPUs were a, was a board full of chips, right? In fact, sometimes multiple boards. Uh, it took multiple chips, multiple boards to make a CPU. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the big change there was when Intel and Motorola came around and said, hey, you know, we're going to make a general purpose CPU. Anybody can use it. Uh, and by the way, you know, you can use the same software. You didn't have to write your own code. And so that was a pretty big transformation. That's when the computer companies uh, such as uh, Data General and Digital Equipment and, and Prime, uh, that's, that's really was the beginning of their end. So they, uh, Intel and Motorola really put them out of business. So not to get ahead of ourselves here, but I mean, I guess, of course, now there's a lot of you know, dedicated fabs that everyone goes to. They don't own the fabs. That's still, you know, still true after that transformation. But do you think we could transition back into an era where people are designing their own chips again? I mean, Apple's doing that now 
or at least they're going to try to. Well, you know, so uh, when computer fan manufacturers ceased to exist, um, we had these companies called IDMs. So it was called an integrated device manufacturer. And so they were just making chips and Intel and Motorola were IDMs. And, you know, it was just a better business model where you could buy these chips on the open market and you could run a single operating system Mm -hmm. and you can run all the software. So it was a natural progression. So IDMs uh, sprung up everywhere and they also had their own fabs. But since they had much higher volumes because they were selling chips to everybody, not just uh, to their internal use, uh, the the economies of scale made it so, you know, it could be a quite a profitable business. And, you know, there Mm. still are some IDMs around, uh, you know, of course, Intel, uh, Texas Instruments, uh, you know, there's quite a few, but not as many as before, of course, because it is very tough to uh, continue to build your own fabs and your own processes uh, and be competitive with, um, you know, the rest of the world. So, and that's starting to get into some of the notes here. Uh, that I wrote down for us to discuss. I mean, why was it seen as an advantage to own your own fab? I mean, you could probably, most people could maybe guess the mindset, but I mean, like, literally, why do you think most people would have said they had their own fabs back then? Well, I don't, have you heard the saying, uh, real men have their own fabs? (laughs) I have, yeah. I think I read that in your book, too. So, you know, that that's something that everybody in Silicon Valley knows. it's attributed to uh, the guy from AMD, but it, it actually wasn't mm. him who said it. Um, the founder of Cypress Semiconductors said it, and but it just caught on. And uh, Jerry Sanders, uh, the president of AMD, kind of had a lot of had, he had a really big ego, and he got up and yelled, "Real men have fabs, right?" So there was a lot of ego uh, going on with it, uh, it, as well as the ability to customize your chips. So do you really want to be using the same chips as everybody else? How do you differentiate you know, your product when you're just tagging on with, with the other guy's silicon? So um, you know, w- one of the chapters in the book is about Xilinx. Um, mm-hmm. are, you f- are you familiar with Xilinx? Have you heard him before? I- I'm aware of the name, but I'm not yeah. super familiar. Yeah, so there there was two companies that I attribute to being the first fabless companies, and uh, Xilinx and Chips and Technologies. Xilinx is a programmable company; they make programmable devices. They're still they're number one in the industry uh, for their market share. Uh, but when they did their business plan, and there's a copy of their business plan here in the uh, Computer Museum in Mountain View, uh, they included a fab, uh, even though they had no intention of building one. Because hmm. these these guys with big fabs, um, it's very hard to keep them busy around the clock, right? Because if you have a slump in your business, yeah. your your fab still has to run to make money. So the big uh, IDMs were uh, releasing out their their fab space to other companies. That's how the fabless business started. So Xilinx got a couple of companies, a Japanese company and a U.S. company, uh, and said, "Hey, listen." Uh, you know, can we borrow some of your fab space? We're doing a programmable product. And it wasn't a big deal because nobody was doing a product like Xilinx. So it's not like they were competing with the, the companies mm. they were fabbing with. But they actually put it in their business plan. Uh, that was the only way they could raise money for a semiconductor company because uh, the the venture capitals, the funding oh. uh, arm, you know, said, hey, Jerry Sanders says real men have fab. So you guys have a fab or, or we're not giving you any money. But um, it was a little bit fraudulent, if you think about it, but it, it yeah. worked out well, so everybody's happy. But uh, if it didn't work out well, there, there probably would have been some legal issues there. I mean, yeah, because that's something um, I was thinking about, like kind of scanning through your book. And I mean, just just thinking about this stuff recently with 
you know, how much discussion there is about like, for instance, TSMC's lead, can anyone catch up to them? When you look back at when everyone owned their own fab, I myself couldn't come up with a good reason in hindsight that you would want one. I mean, I think the best engineering argument you could make is, well, if we design this node, we can design it around our needs, right? And then that's an advantage we can wield that only we have this node for these products. But at the end of the day, it just, I, I feel like that often has held, you know, that they'll help hold each other back. Like, oh, this node needs to be this way. And so we're going to focus on that. But then that might delay the chips design or vice versa. I mean, is is that an incorrect assumption of why it can be a hindrance to own a fab? Well, yeah, you know, a, as it turns out, we know. Um, but uh, when we had our fabs, you know, you could also guarantee capacity, right? Mm -hmm. you, you had control over your design, over your capacity. You know, you could guarantee X amount of chips by building your own fabs. But if you're renting space, you know, what happens if there's other renters that will pay more money? Um, you know, it, it's it's supply and demand. So the fabless concept really is a little bit frightening if you think about it. Um, yeah. Way, way back when. Right. Way back when. And that's why, you know, all the banks and, and the, the investors said, hey, you got to have your own fab, control your own destiny. Right. And, you know, when TSMC came out, so See, I was that in the sounds industry. flashy, right? Yeah. Control your own destiny. But what does that really mean? Right. Control your own silicon. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, now it has different meanings, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, um, one of the companies that rented out their fabs was Texas Instruments. And mm -hmm. one of the executives at Tex Texas Instruments was Morris Chang. So he's the founder of TSMC. Right. And so so that's where he got the idea for the business is he was renting out fab space. And, you know, they were very selective who they rented it to because they weren't going to rent it to a company that was going to compete with them. Right. Because that, that doesn't make sense. Uh, but Morris Chang said, hey, you know, there's a business here. Uh, we, we need to, you know, open up the manufacturing, uh, economies of scale, you know, do it cheaper. And, and he went back to Taiwan and he pitched it and the Taiwanese government and, um, Phillips, by the way, uh, semiconductor were some of the early investors and, you know, without the Taiwanese government's backing, uh, they never would have made it because manufacturing semiconductors is very mm -hmm. expensive. And back then it was very hazardous, by the way. Um, you know, there's a lot of chemicals and, oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, toxic I've seen the stories. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when my wife and I decided to have children, she looked around and, you know, where the safe water and safe, you know, environment was and and the incidence of birth defects. And uh, in Silicon Valley, it was a, a big problem. So we actually moved uh, 40 miles north to mm. a, a, a more <laughs> suburban location to have children uh, because she was concerned because we had all these fabs around and they really weren't regulated. But you know what the U.S. government did? And if you want to know the, the honest answer of why manufacturing went um, overseas is because oh. at, back then we didn't have the ability to keep them clean. Mm. And, you know, I remember working in a fab and it had one of those uh, signs that says this many days since an accident. You know, I mean, it, it never hit double digits because there was always something going wrong. And because we were in the forefront of semiconductor manufacturing technology, right? So we didn't know. But now semiconductor fabs are are very green. Uh, in fact, TSMC had their uh, symposium this week. So Monday mm -hmm. and Tuesday, it was online this year. Uh, but they did a whole speech about uh, their fabs and, and how green they are. And so 
you know, we could bring, I mean, j- just as a, a side note, we could bring semiconductor manufacturing back to the United States uh, in a very eco-friendly manner. Um, but, you know, 35, 40 years ago, that wasn't the case. It's interesting you say that, too, because, I mean, as usual, if, if, if anything goes overseas, everyone assumes it's cost. But when I look at some of these uh, manufacturing locations, I'm like, a lot of this is automated and the people you're hiring, no matter where they are in the world, are probably going to have to be paid decently. I mean, there's only a handful of people that can do a lot of these jobs running fabs. So you're, you're saying that started overseas. I'm sure some of it was cost, right? Uh, but a lot, but it was also just regulations. Yeah. But you have to remember back then we weren't automated. And so there was sure. a lot of people. And, you know, for example, uh, one of my jobs was carrying wafers. I mean, I, I, we would literally carry the wafers around to each station and load them in. And, and now if you go into a fab, you know, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have toured dozens of fabs. I've been all over the world and, uh, it looks like something out of Star Wars, right? And oh, yeah. rarely, rarely will you see a person. I mean, seriously, mm-hmm. you will not see a person. Uh, so that that's just a big difference uh, between back then and today. It, it's completely automated. Automated. It's very safe uh, environmentally, and uh, the water that comes out of the fabs is now cleaner than the water that goes in. So uh, yes, you know, it's a different that's world. That's true of a lot you know, of factories now too in the U.S. Oh yeah, you have to right, but. You know, the mindset is still there of, of fabs being dirty, right? So that's not the case. Yeah. And you don't, I, and you don't I, need a bunch of people. So, you know, having a fab in your town is not going to help employment really much at all. No. Yeah. Uh, the example I was going to give is I remember the I, I worked for General Motors during the Flint, Michigan lead water crisis thing. And it was one of the first places that discovered the lead in the water was General Motors testing facility where they said their machines were having issues with the water they were piping in and that they were worried that it was too dirty for their cars. And they're like, this isn't going anywhere else, is it? <laughs> yeah, groundwater. That, that's what my wife looked at when we were going to have children and, and the groundwater was a problem and the incidence of birth defects and issues. And, you know, it's just... Uh, a lot of people, it's out of sight, out of mind, but uh, it will come back and get you at some point in time. Yeah, I mean, you can try to disregard it, but it is real and it does affect your health. I mean, as um, we found out. Yeah. Uh, the, an interesting comparison I saw in your book, which I mean, wait, why don't you plug your book? What's the name? It's Fabulous, right? Um, yeah, I've, I've written quite a few books, actually, if you look me up on Amazon. Um, but the first book I wrote was Fabulous, The Transformation of the Semiconductor Industry. And, you know, I wrote it for a couple of reasons. One is uh, back then the semiconductor industry didn't get a lot of press. So mm. uh, I started a website called semiwiki.com and it's an open forum for semiconductor professionals. So we only allow semiconductor people on there so we can talk openly about the challenges we have and you know what the problems uh, are that we're solving because the mainstream media pretty much ignored us back then and uh, you know my kids I have I have four millennial kids they had no idea what semiconductors were or anything. So I wrote this book and uh, you know they didn't read it so they still don't know but you know we we developed these semiconductors and there really are a big part of modern life, right? I mean, oh, if yeah. you think about it, without semiconductors, we're, we're in trouble. In fact, if you look at the semiconductor industry right now, we're doing quite well <laughs> compared yeah. to other industries. And, you know, the reason is people will not give up their phones. 
and everybody's going into the cloud with Zoom and everything. So, you know, that's all semiconductors. So we're having a, a pretty good year and it'll continue to be so. And, you know, the, the thing you have to think of is what's going to happen if our semiconductors get restricted or limited or, you know, trade embargoes or stuff. And uh, it's really not a pretty picture because people will not give up their phones. They will give up food before they give up their phones. Well, I mean, yeah, and you could, I mean, at least at first people would argue that uh, I have enough food <laughs> too. <laughs> like, so it would make sense that I think some people would trade that. One thing I'd bring up too is an interesting comparison in this book is comparing the silicon business to the pharmaceutical business. I thought that was an interest, like all of this money that goes into designing the chips or coming up with a hopefully, right, safe drug. But once you start making it, it's like cents per yeah. chip or per uh, chemical. I mean, I guess I don't know if you wanted to talk about that at all, because I think a lot of people and you and, and, and you know, a lot of my fans are PC gamers or console mm -hmm. gamers or something. And they're curious about what's coming, the chips that go into their gaming devices. I mean, and there's a lot of, I think, misconceptions about R&D costs and how it affects things that the reason, for instance, you might get a gaming console for four hundred dollars is because of the economy of scale. And quite literally, once it's designed right, that console doesn't actually cost that much to make. Right. Right. So, you know, the thing about the consoles is uh, keep the console cheap and, you know, charge them for the games. You know, yeah. the, the comparison I made to the pharmaceutical company, I have issues with the pharmaceutical company. So that that's was kind of a personal thing is, uh, you know, drugs don't get cheaper, uh, it, you know, and there's a lot of R&D involved in making drugs, I understand. But there's a lot of R&D involved in making chips. And the difference is chips have continued to get cheaper mm. every year. I mean, you know, I have graphs, I have charts, you know, we 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 track these things and uh the number of transistors you put on a chip uh, and the manufacturing process and the packaging process allows us to put more features in one of these chips every year. And mm -hmm. the cost is, is doesn't go up. Right. So, you know, the cost that they're selling these chips for is pretty standard. But the number of transistors, the number of features on each chip goes up dramatically. And that's something that other industries don't do. Right. Mm -hmm. So cars, uh, I think drug companies are the easiest one because my god you know you charge a hundred dollars for a pill right and the prices don't go down um the more they manufacture but with semiconductors they most certainly do and that's how we got the uh portable electronics right i mean they have to be cheap and without cheap semiconductors we would have not had smartphones right well so, wouldn't you say the difference though is when it comes to semiconductors and i guess i guess at a certain point you could argue this isn't true really but I mean, it's a luxury, right? So let's say I want a faster graphics card. I don't actually need a faster graphics card. The one I've had, frankly, the one I had three years ago would still run all the games I have now. Whereas <laughs> the reason, and then there's just so much enormous competition in the silicon space as well that you, it'd be, unless you can command an absurd performance lead, it's usually suicide, right? To raise yeah. prices. Where And then in the drug industry though, it's, I think it's just a lot of, well, you could argue we've been making do without a lot of these drugs before, but, you know, they prolong lives or they make, they remove pain. And so I think people, 
see it less of a luxury and more of a something they need. There's a, obviously a lot of other things affecting drug prices as well. Yeah, we, we I was just doing a manufacturing model for that. Obviously, uh, drugs and semiconductors aren't the same, although some people say games are, are drug-like. And, you know, we make smartphones and, you know, I have four millennial children and they have these phones glued to their head. Uh, I used to, you know, uh, ground my children if they did something wrong and they were pretty happy to go to their room as long as they had their phone. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's a different world. But if you look at semiconductors, um, you know, especially with the cars now, so cars have a huge amount of semiconductor content in it. Your home does, mm, yeah. your, your phones do. Everything, um, pretty much. You know, everything. And there are many more semiconductors in the medical market than there have ever been. So, um, you know, I think it's going to be a pretty close call between semiconductors, importance of life and, and other things. Uh, so, uh, but that that brings us you know to where we are today which is you know we're still trying to make faster cheaper semiconductors and to make them cheaper we have to put more on a chip and you know what's nice is uh they have these things called teardowns now that they didn't used to have in my day in my day we had to tear it down ourselves but uh, if you look at the Apple phone teardowns, it will give you an example of, of the advancements because the first iPhones had a lot of chips in them and they have one main chip yeah. called an SOC. And the second book I wrote is actually on SOCs. Uh, it's called uh, Mobile Unleashed. So the first half of the book is a close look at the technology uh, that Arm provides. There's a company Arm. I'm sure you've, mm -hmm. you've heard of yeah. them. Um, so I did a, a, it's a history of Arm and, and how they brought their architecture to the industry. And, you know, it was a calamity of errors, actually. Uh, and then the second half of the book uh, looks at uh, three different companies, uh, Samsung, Qualcomm, and Apple, of how they became, you know, semiconductor manufacturers and how they came to dominate the SOC market. But, you know, Apple's the best story because, you know, I grew up with Apple. They made these, you know, goofy computers way back mm -hmm. when, the Apple II and, and the Macintosh, and, you know, they were more toys. But uh, Apple decided they were going to build their own semiconductors and they were going to make, you know, portable devices. And so they made the iPod, the iPad, and the iPhone. And the SOC that powered these things um, absorbed all the other chips that surrounded it. So, you know, instead of mm -hmm. having a dozen chips in your phone, you have one or two or three. Uh, but if you look at the teardowns over the years, you can see how the SOCs have evolved. And, you know, they, they consume the graphics. They consumed mm -hmm. um, all the different other parts, the modem. Uh, so now you can get everything in one chip. And that really, uh, that type of, of, of consolidation in a chip has fueled Moore's law. So that really brought um, mobile electronics to the world. So the second book uh, documents that. It's, it's not as interesting in this first book because it's very technical, but it's kind of the chapter on Apple. It's definitely worth reading and Qualcomm. Yeah, and it seems like with SOC is we're not adding more chips, but we're just adding more and more dedicated components to SOCs as we move forward, right? Like that that's a way of continuing to scale performance over time, right? If we can't just make the processors faster and eventually, I don't know if there's a point in like, you know, putting 64 cores in your iPhone, probably not, but you can put like a dedicated chip for just like processing images, like from the camera quickly or a dedicated chip. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it, it's there's benefits of integration. Uh, one of them is cost, of course. And uh, the other one is form factor. 
you know, because mm-hmm. you, you have to have power, battery powered devices and the more chips, the more battery. Um, but another thing is performance. So if you take four chips uh, that are communicating externally on, you know, a printed circuit board uh, and put them into one, the communication between them is so much faster. For example, a GPU yeah. and a CPU. If the GPU and CPU are sitting inside uh, a, of a chip together, um, it's just so much faster. So, you know, that's why um, when we talk about Moore's law or we talk about scaling, there's much more than just the transistor itself. Yes. It's the surrounding environment. And so, um, you know, one of the things we do is we put, you know, and inside these plastic containers that with the little legs on them uh, is this thing called a die. And that is the actual semiconductor device. Um, so we have the ability to put multiple die in a package now. And um, if, if you have all the components on a single die, it's very fast. If you have multiple dies, it's still pretty fast. If you mm-hmm. have multiple chips, then it gets slower, right? Because yes. the communication links. But you can put two dies together and um, using a, a high-speed communications bus and get uh, a, a very, very good performance. Um, you know, FPGAs are, are an example of that. Uh, some of the latest FPGAs, they have two dies in a package. So you can get twice the capacity in one package just by, you know, putting two die right next to each other. Um, FPGAs are kind of easy because they're the same thing, just repeated over and over. They're storage, you know, cells and such. Uh, For an SOC, it's a little bit different because you have different functions. You have a modem, you have a GPU, you have a CPU. But um, Apple has done, uh, they're the world leader in SOC design, which is uh, pretty amazing because they're not even a semiconductor company, right? They're systems company. Well, I mean, th- that's the thing I'm, I've started to argue low key in some of my podcasts is when you see Apple hiring, you know, people say, well, Apple's not Intel or AMD. And it's like, well, until they just hire people that used to work at, at, at AMD or Intel, right? They can hire those people, guys. And as their teams continue to grow and they design their own chips. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not so sure Apple isn't going to be thought of as a silicon company soon. And and actually another thing you said that I thought is interesting is, you know, at Hot Chips this year, obviously not at, I guess, remotely watching it. It's funny how just a few years ago, AMD, they, a lot of people were betting AMD would fail, that it was a huge, bold move to put these different dies together, like you're saying, right? And now it seemed like every company at Hot Chips was talking about their new high-speed fabric and putting multiple dies together. It's so obvious that AMD was one of the early, com- I don't know if early, but one of the, uh, there were companies before that did this, but one of the big companies in the past few years to really realize that to scale Moore's Law, you just need to start having a good fabric for putting multiple dyes together. Yeah, we've actually been doing that for quite some time. So, yeah. uh, you know, don't kid yourself. It's nothing new. Uh, the only new thing is they call them chiplets now, which is a, a cool, you know, name, right? And it's so when, when you have catchy names and the media picks up on it, and now it's chiplet this, chiplet that. But we've been actually doing it for quite some time. Uh, yeah, that's just another uh, piece of the equation. I actually am not a fan of chiplets because it's cheating, right? So if you use what? a chiplet, you, you can do a different process, uh, different processes on the same ship. So generally a die is one process. So seven nanometer, mm-hmm. seven nanometer. You can put uh, 20 nanometer chiplets on a seven nanometer die. And, you know, you can say, hey, it's a seven nanometer chip. But then if you look at it, it's like, well, hey, wait, you have more 
20 nanometer uh, transistors on here than seven nanometer. Uh, so, you know, an SOC from Apple doesn't have chiplets. It is one die. And they do that because that gets the ultimate speed. But if you have some... Well, it's a small SOC though, right? AMD is making the equivalent of 1,000 millimeter squared Epic chips. Yeah. It seemed, For cheating, it seems to certainly have gotten them to the head of the line all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it depends what you're what you're doing. Um, if if you're not dependent on a battery, so uh, that that the game's the game's free, right? You can do as big a chip you want. Uh, Apple's chips are about a hundred uh, uh, right. square meters, and they have you know I think the latest one has more than ten billion transistors. In fact, you can look that up uh, on Wikipedia or something. They 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 track them, and you can see. Uh, how big the dies are and how many transistors they have on them. Uh, but the growth rate is is pretty startling. Uh, Apple has been able to grow their transistor count and their feature, their function count without growing their die size, right? And, you know, they can't because the phones are about as small as you're mm-hmm. going to get them. So you can't do this big, fat, you know, hairy chip like uh, AMD or, or Intel can. And, you know, you have to have a, a special uh, coolant and backup generator to power some of these things, right? Well, yeah, and they have enough money. They're able to go to any fab. So they've made, you know, chips at Intel before. They made them at Samsung. And now they seem to ju- just be basically, of course, going with TSMC. Um, I actually want to throw in a reader mail question here. So VI Pass writes in, uh, just like you can if you support us on Patreon. It says, companies such as 3DFX, AMD, Intel, and others all have invested at one point into owning their own production foundries. And in some cases, it leads up to their death or near death of those companies. Well, it seems like a good idea to produce your own designs. It always seems to come back to be their own downfall. Why are large companies such as Intel, who owns their own sources of production, begin to fall way behind the curve to its competition. And it does seem to almost consistently happen. Like Intel is one of the last ones who still owns fabs. Well, yes and no. Uh, it's interesting. He says 3DFX, that, that's a blast from the past. Uh, the, I remember working with them years ago, probably 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they were one of the first graphics uh, uh, chip makers, uh, very leading edge, didn't have a happy ending. Well, they changed the game and they were all anyone talked about in PC gaming for like two years. Yeah. And then it, if you read right history, it's just like that. They're gone. Like snap of the fingers. They met, made a couple of mistakes and it was gone. Yeah. You know, they were here in Silicon Valley. So I had a, a, a front row seat to that. Uh, that was more of a management issue. But, uh, you know, the thing is, is that um, the foundation of semiconductors is manufacturing. Right. So this is what happened when we did the fabulous transformation, when TSMC mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, there were a dozen different foundries at one point in time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, TSMC used to be two to three process nodes behind Intel. And, you know, it, it wasn't a big deal because TSMC was manufacturing chips for the mass market and the mass market wasn't necessarily the leading edge. You know, uh, Intel had that with their CPUs, but a lot of the chips that were on the board um, were not leading edge, didn't need to be. So mm-hmm. the volume of silicon that that surrounded these leading edge chips was enough to, you know, make you... Um, uh, profitable and successful in the fab market. You I know, read that uh, TSMC didn't even really have people using them as their main fab, that it was just basically extra capacity. Um, you know, that really wasn't it, but that could, that that did happen later. Um, but, you know, what it was is, is Morris Chang went out and said, hey, you guys don't need to build fabs. 
Mm-hmm. Anybody can do a chip. Just throw us your design, your GDS is, is what's it called, uh, the file system, and we will make it. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, hundreds of entrepreneurs said, oh, geez, this is great. I don't need to do a business plan and, and raise a billion dollars. I can just, you know, manuf- uh, design a chip on my spare time and, you know, see how it goes. So it really was for first source manufacturing. And uh, the the thing that the real problem back then was that, um, everybody copied TSMC. So if you designed a chip for mm-hmm. TSMC, you could manufacture it at UMC, at Chartered, at SMIC. And so TSMC would do all the hard work and then some of the volumes would go to other companies. So that wow. was a big that was a big flaw in his business plan. And uh, you know, for example, I worked with a company, Qualcomm. They actually manufactured chips at four different foundries. And the reason they did that is because their margins were very thin. You know, this is the big d- difference between Apple and a standard fabulous chip company yeah. is Apple sells, you know, systems and they make, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars where a chip company is making five bucks, right? Or 10 bucks. So the margins are pretty thin. So Qualcomm would say, hey, you know, here's my design, goes to the highest bidder and, you know, they would split it up and, and it would keep margins pretty thin. Um, and, you know, th- that's why we kind of went back to where we started when I was in the business, where systems companies were making their own chips. Now, you know, we're back to that where systems companies are making their own chips, but they're actually not manufacturing them. They're just designing them. Yeah. But they have they have uh, good good grips on the manufacturing uh, because TSMC, you know, doesn't compete with our customers. They're very good partners. Um, you know, the problem we have now, uh, just to bring this up quickly, is. TSMC really is the only foundry out there now. Yeah, I see that becoming a huge problem for competitiveness in the next couple of years. I mean, pretty it, soon. It's, it's not good only having one manufacturing source for leading edge chips. And, you know, I'm a fan of TSMC. Uh, they actually have a very good business model, you know, but um, if if they decided to be evil, uh, it could be a real <laughs> problem. Yeah. You know, Google's uh, mission statement at the beginning was don't be evil. Uh, clearly, they threw that out. They said, uh, maybe not anymore. <laughs> maybe we can be evil if we make a lot of money. So, uh, you know, luckily TSMC is a, is a very uh, moral, very um, friendly company. They, they've based their business model on customers. And mm-hmm. because, you know, you have to realize TSMC doesn't design semiconductors. And so and that's a decision, right? A decided yeah. move that we're just never going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't design the semiconductors, it's hard to manufacture them because you don't know what's coming down the road. So the ability to partnership intimately with key designers of semiconductors like AMD and Apple and uh, some of these other companies um, gives TSMC the knowledge and the, the future you know, ability to create these these chips that don't exist today, that they're going to have to you know, invent new technologies and solve new problems. So uh, they, they have it. Uh, it, as it turns out, they have the best of both worlds because they have um, access to hundreds of companies and hundreds of different types of designs. And, you know, they'll see every potential problem sooner than anybody else. You know, whereas Intel just makes one type of product, really, or two. And that limits their their focus and their uh, ability to investigate. Uh, you know, the other thing, is, it's just pure math. Um, The ecosystem around TSMC is is IP, it's EDA, it's customers. And these people spend trillions of dollars in R&D doing this, and they share all this knowledge with TSMC. If you're making your own chips, uh, then you don't have that big of a budget, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, looking at 
TSMC, I would say the one thing that that is hopeful is uh, it's something I've been covering <clears throat> on my channel is how much of Nvidia's next graphics card lineup is going to be, you know, for the past few generations, they will make some of their lower end chips on Samsung. And it seems like this time, at least most of the gaming lineup, if not the entire beginning of the gaming gaming lineup, at least for this year, was made on a Samsung 8 nanometer, which is really just a refined 10 nanometer node. Um, but, and, and while that may be some performance loss versus if they were on the latest TSMC 7 nanometer that AMD is going to use, at the same time, at least that's money going to hopefully making sure Samsung can keep up with TSMC because really Samsung's a full node behind TSMC at this point. When I look at their five nanometer feature set, you can kind of argue, right, that that it's around TSMC seven nanometer EUV. But in reality, it seems to be even worse than that, despite them calling it five nanometer. So I'm hoping at least Samsung can at least get some larger partners now that, well, they may be at a disadvantage. Hopefully the cost makes it so it's worth it and Samsung can keep up because Intel isn't. Well, you know, I've worked with Samsung and these guys for 30 years and uh, really it, it's a cultural business model issue. Uh, Samsung mm. is really, really keen on being the first to new technologies. And, yeah. you know, they, they, they and it, it's, it's part of the culture of the company, you know, and, and I'm sure the CEO says, okay, how many patents do you have? How many first do you have, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, just because you're first to a technology doesn't mean you can actually manufacture it. <laughs> and and yeah. Samsung has, have, has had yield problems, uh, serious, serious yield problems, you know, throughout their history because they were first to a node. Uh, but TSMC is always first to high volume manufacturing. So you really have to separate the two, the mm. first to announce going someplace and then the first one to ship. And the, the problem TSMC has is they have some very big customers and Apple is the, is the, is the game changer because Apple needs a new chip every year for their iProduct, you know, mm. iPod, iPad. They will and, pay for it, yeah. And, and they write some very big checks. And so, but, you know, back in the day, uh, we didn't release a semiconductor process until it was done. So we would put up these specs and we would say, hey, Moore's Law, you know, this is the process node. We need a full node transition. This is what we need. And we would hold it until we met those specs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it would take two years. Sometimes it would yep. take three years. Sometimes it would take four years. That's the history and the tradition of the semiconductor industry. And, you know, for companies like Intel, they need huge yield because they're making a lot of chips. And if they're not yeah. yielding, they're going to lose money. So, you know, TSMC started doing these things called half steps. And we, we used to do half nodes a long time mm -hmm. ago. You would take a, a, a like a 65 nanometer and then you would shrink it and, and make it tighter because you had manufacturing experience with it. And then you mm -hmm. could come out with a tighter, cheaper version. And we, we call those half nodes. It's not something we celebrated because it wasn't a big deal. And we didn't really have clever names for them. It was just, <laughs> you know, uh, a, yeah. a better version of the previous process. So Apple and uh, TSMC changed that. And Apple wants a new chip every year, a new process every year. So TSMC does these half steps. And so uh, 10 nanometer to 7 nanometer to 6 nanometer, those are all tiny steps. And it's using the same fab, the same fab equipment. They're just making improvements, right? So um, it's a different naming scheme. It's a different uh, methodology. 
Intel is still trying to do the, you know, the, the mega ones, law yeah. thing where, uh, you know, 10 nanometers, seven nanometer is going to be, you know, twice the transistor density. Then they said, well, you know, maybe we'll do 1.7 density where, where TSMC is doing a fraction of that. Uh, if you look at the TSMC numbers, they don't compare half step to half step. So you no. know, we just we just did their big. You always have to like reference conference. a few nodes back that they've been, you know, for each one. Well, for example, they just did this uh, at their conference. They're they're comparing seven nanometer to five nanometer, and that's a good a good jump, right? You get double mm -hmm. digits uh, performance increase, power, but they didn't. They left off uh, seven nanometer plus and six nanometer, right? Yeah. Because the difference between six nanometer and five man nanometer is single digit. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, uh, th this is the, what the media wants to hear, you know, Moore's law is still alive, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But w the, the benefit of doing that, and this is what really is important. Semiconductors is the learning curve. You know, when you're taking little steps, yeah. you can, you can really accelerate at the learning curve and you can find out what the problems are with the equipment, with the designs. I mean, there's so many, uh, people involved in this recipe. It's just daunting. And so, you know, taking small steps, as it turns out, now that we know, is just brilliant because TSMC is the only one, you know, to get EUV yielding uh, in high volumes. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, there was a question from uh, the media on, you know, we did a virtual event with TSMC, mm -hmm. which is the first time. And they had Q&A and stuff like that. And, and one, one guy says, how come you stayed with FinFets at three nanometer? while Intel and Samsung are going to a new technology called yeah, Gate All Around. I think you already answered your own question. Go on, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, the answer to that question is because Apple said so, right? Mm. Um, Apple can't take the risk of not yielding, and we have not sure. seen Gate All Around yield yet. It's in the labs. It looks good. I'm sure TSMC will do it. Um, but, you know, they did the same thing with EUV. They brought EUV in at 7 nanometers. So mm -hmm. here... here here you already have seven nanometer yielding, everything's great. Then you introduce EUV and you only do a few layers. You know, you, you do a third EUV yep. and see how that goes. And then with five nano, with six nanometer, you do half EUV. And then with five nanometer, you do full EUV. So that cautious approach, as it turns out, is you know, is the way to go. Um, it's it's not an ego brag. You know, real men have fabs. Real men, you know, do Moore's <laughs> law. Well, real, real men, men actually manufacture products. I would say. Well, I I would say real men actually make money manufacturing products yeah. uh, because some companies don't. Um, you know, Samsung, uh, the semiconductor business is such a small piece of their company. You don't even see it in their reports. Um, mm. you have no idea if they're making money on their uh, foundry business or not. Uh, and if, even if they are, it's a very small amount of money and it's all about yield, right? Yeah. I mean, and I remember TSMC specifically giving some talks around the prolonged, shall we say 28 <laughs> nanometer era where there was all this hype, oh, there was going to be a 20 nanometer GPU and that just didn't happen. They just made 28 nanometer again, like a, you know, three times. But then once TSMC hit 16 nanometer, they said, no, we're really going to have a 12 nanometer node. We're really going to have a 10 nanometer node. And we say we are, we've learned how to, you know, the things that were preventing us from going from 28 to 16 and really from 28 to even 20 nanometer, we've learned those lessons. And it sounds like really at a macro level, the lesson they learned is stop with this ridiculous 
everything has to get 10 times better mentality and just take half steps over and over and over. And eventually, like you say, you know, you can make fun of them from, for not comparing five nanometer to six, but at the end of the day, new node coming out on time, 20, 30% better than before as usual. Yeah. You know, it's, so for us semiconductor guys, we, we know the difference between this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. When you design a semiconductor, you get something called a PDK, and it's called a process design kit. And you get these PDKs before the process is done. And what it is is simulation models and and uh, complete descriptions of the process. So we, we don't really read an article and say, oh, I want this this process because it's going to be better. We, we do a <laughs> thorough analysis. So we actually know what all this stuff is. But, you know, as a consumer, do, do you want a, a chip based, a chip called 10 plus plus, or do you want a chip called seven nanometer? You know, I mean, realistically, they're kind of the same, but it, it's just part of marketing. And, you know, Intel really has to has to get with the program and start matching, you know, the other foundries. But, you know, you brought up 28 nanometer. That was an interesting node. That was actually a, a tipping point for the, uh, Mm-hmm. semiconductor industry um there were two ways to go on 28 nanometer and this was the the gate first gate last uh controversy i don't know if if you are familiar with it but um it's high k metal gate technology we introduced a new technology at 28 nanometer and either you did the gate first and how you put the gate down on on the on the die or you do the gate last and intel was the first one to high k uh, metal gate and they chose one direction and uh tsmc you know, they were a year or two behind Intel. They chose mm-hmm. the same direction as as Intel. But the other foundries, Samsung and uh, IBM and UMC and Chartered, they, they chose uh, a different implementation. And that meant that you could not take a design from TSMC oh. and, man- and you manufacture it elsewhere. And you know what happened was, uh, and th- this is uh, a big uh, historical note, uh, TSMC, the, the other the other 28 nanometer uh implementations didn't yield right and so tsmc is the only one that oh, had so 20 nanometer if the designs aren't compatible and the others aren't yielding you'd be a moron to not just everyone flock to tsmc then well the problem is is we're on allocation and th- this is this is the problem that everybody fears uh, is you can't get enough chips no matter what because they just didn't have enough. You know, the, the other implementation, the other companies were supposed to make up half the industry because TSMC has, you know, mm-hmm. maintained a 50% market share plus or minus. But all of a sudden you you lose half your capacity. So mm-hmm. uh NVIDIA, you know, couldn't get enough chips. And and because TSMC said, hey, listen, we need to be fair and share. <laughs> and uh uh other companies weren't so happy with that. You know, they said, hey, you know, we're on your pr- fab we we need more chips so uh anyway that that's how it started and then uh, after 28 nanometer came finfets and uh that is a huge difference because finfets are not created equal and Mm -hmm. that also changed our naming scheme you know 28 nanometer we used to name our processes based on the length of the transistor yeah so they they were two-dimensional you know 28 nanometer that's how long they were so that was a very easy decision on how to name processes but with finfets they're actually two-dimensional they have fins and the bigger the fin the smaller the the base so you really can't do the naming scheme so now we just make things up uh but um, <laughs> you know well, what's what's funny is tsmc was a little bit more honorable in the beginning they looked at uh intel's 14 nanometer and they said okay well we're not as dense as that so we're going to call ours mm-hmm. 16 nanometer right so tsmc called it 16 but Samsung said, 
hell no, we're going to call ours 14. Yeah, so and, Global Foundries. Yep. And well, actually, Global Foundries used the Samsung process. Yeah, they had a co. So it was yeah. the same. But you know what happened? Global Foundries failed. Their 14 didn't work. So they had to license it from Samsung. But, you know, the, the point is, is that TSMC and Samsung had the same process, but different names. And TSMC had to spend a lot of their day explaining why theirs was just as good as Samsung's. It's actually better, though, typically. Yeah, even though it was named 16 and Samsung's was 14. But, you know, TSMC learned a valuable lesson of, of names really need to match for customers' peace of mind. Uh, so, uh, you know, you don't want to extend the sales cycle or the marketing cycle explaining, you know, the technical details, why your process is better, even though it's got a, uh, a higher, you know, geometry name, but that's something Intel hasn't learned yet. And, uh, they, they're really going to have to get with it if they want to be a mainstream, you know, uh, semiconductor manufacturer. Well, I think there was a bit of time where <laughs> the prominence of Intel, I mean, the amount of people I saw online gamers going well intel 14 nanometer is real 14 nanometer and it's like i mean it's the most real none of these are real how we used to name them anyways but um the funny thing uh, that i think might come up although probably not and we're getting a little bit into rumor territory here is i i believe that most of as i said nvidia's gaming lineup of ampere is going to be eight nanometer i've been told that the reps for the Quadro side of NVIDIA are saying they will be manufacturing some of their top cards on seven nanometer. Obviously the A100 is TSMC seven nanometer. Um, but then there's also rumors of, in, of NVIDIA trying to get a hold or, or trying to effectively utilize. Also Samsung's new, and again, I put big quotation marks here, right? Five nanometer EUV node. But the funny thing is I know that you know, again, quote unquote, five nanometer node from Samsung, despite having a similar density to TSMC's seven EUV, I'm pretty sure is quite a bit worse power characteristics. So it would be funny, in my opinion, if like you had a lineup that they put five nanometer on the box and then they underperformed the high end product that says seven nanometer from a different fab. And that would just go to show you how much of it is just straight up marketing now. Yeah, you know, um, the thing is, is that we we write in detail on this. We have a couple of process experts, and they look at the transistor density as published in in technical papers. So we have a lot of conferences, and you have to publish a technical paper, and it has to be you know correct. Um, that there's a lot of of vetting that goes along. But you know, the thing is, is that um, the tradition is to use a an SRAM block. And it's a very tight embedded memory block. And, you know, we say, okay, you can get this many transistors in an SRAM. Mm -hmm. So that is your density. Right. And, and that's fine. But what they don't say is, oh, well, that SRAM only has 10% yield. So you really can't design that. You have to give yeah. much more spacing. You have to do this and do this. So, you know, it, it, it's impossible to tell which process is good for a GPU. Um, and you can't compare it to an SRAM or a CPU or anything else because it's really a different animal. And so, you know, uh, just saying we're better because we're on five nanometer. Wow. Uh, not even close. Uh, you know, you have to wait till the silicon comes out and run benchmarks because you can't actually design to the specifications that they release in these in these papers and and talk about because that's best case scenario with a tailwind. Right. right? 
And so um, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, as I said, Samsung is a little bit less stringent with their marketing um, vetting, and they always want to be first and the best. And it doesn't always well, end first up that isn't way. the same as the best, right? <laughs> well, you know, best on paper, I guess you, you call it. Uh, but, you know, what you have to do is, you know, look at the uh, Apple processors year over year, look at the GPUs year over year. Um, the reason why NVIDIA is j- just to give you the, the mm-hmm. background backstory. NVIDIA uh, CEO Jensen was very good friends with uh, Morris Chang, and they started out together. Uh, NVIDIA mm-hmm. was one of their first customers. And uh, at 28 nanometer, you know, NVIDIA wanted more dye, and Morris said, no, you know, you signed a wafer agreement. We do these things called wafer yeah, agreements. Yeah. They're, they're signed a couple of years in advance that says, hey, we're going to buy this many wafers. If we buy more, we'll pay more. If we buy less, we'll pay, you know, we'll make it up to you. It's, it's a, I used to do wafer agreements. They're, they're very uh, complicated. And it's per wafer, you know, it's not like <clears throat> per chip. That's correct. And, you know, we used to do wafer on uh, wafer agreements on good dye, but we don't do that anymore because, you know, uh, TSMC Mm. would say, hey, you have to design to these design rules to get the optimum uh, dye. And NVIDIA was the biggest offender. They said, no, we want to put more (laughs) stuff. And and then they wouldn't yield and they'd say, hey, TSMC, it's your fault. It's like, well, not really. Fair me. That just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it. I was involved in a couple of these and it's like, you guys didn't even uh, obey the design rules. You know, you get these things called waivers. It's, it's, well, we want to cheat. So here's a waiver, you know, it's like, well, okay, it's up to you, but we're not guaranteeing you yield. And then they don't yield and then they blame, you know, other people. But uh, at 28 nanometer uh, that happened and uh, NVIDIA couldn't get enough chips. And then the other 28 nanometers didn't yield. So that made it worse. So, uh, NVIDIA started going to multiple sources, but they were sole source at TSMC, you know, since the beginning of time. But, you know, as I said, uh, if everybody's sole source to TSMC, uh, that that's not good, right? Because what happens if there's... Well, yeah, a, I don't think everyone is going Taiwan. to be, though, because I, <laughs> I hear that TSMC is fed up with NVIDIA as much as they used to be friends, that they are just so fed up with, at least, and this is what I'm told, right? I can't pretend to speak for everyone who works at any of these companies, but like what I like any and, and you gave an example. Anytime something goes wrong with an NVIDIA architecture, it's the foundry's fault. And yeah. NVIDIA is very demanding without I'm sure they pay well, but without paying Apple writing Apple's checks, you know, that big of a check that I, I just hear that they are very hard to work with sometimes. And that from the from the sounds of it, they're now pushing pretty hard to become big partners and prop up Samsung. I guess I guess we'll see how well that works out. You know, so here's the, here's the problem is with TSMC, they have an inner circle of customers that they rely mm-hmm. on for yeah. R&D. And, um, you know, ever since the, the separation of processes where you can no longer, you know, manufacture a chip on everybody's process, and this happened at 28 and then at FinFET, um, you know, there's a lot of secrets involved. And in order mm-hmm. to be in the inner circle of TSMC, uh, you have to sign some very big NDAs and, yeah. you know, you cannot manufacture at other companies for X amount of time, you know, so, you know, you have TSMC secrets, so you can't go over to Samsung and manufacture at Samsung because TSMC secrets are going to be involved in that, you know, and it's it's just something that has has evolved over the years and TSMC is really keen on protecting their secrets so people don't take their chips away and manufacture them elsewhere. 
And so, you know, what happened was um, NVIDIA was in the inner circle, of course, you know, from yeah. years and years. Um, but and I don't know if you remember or if you noticed, but uh, now they have another inner circle uh, a player called AMD. Yeah, they're and big, big, AMD, big old friends with them. Now, you know, this is recent. Uh, mm-hmm. So at 14 nanometer, uh, AMD was manufacturing at Global Foundries yep. and Samsung. Um, they were actually plug compatible. So anything Global Foundry couldn't make, you could a second source over to Samsung pretty easily. But, you know, uh, TSMC says, hey, you know, uh, we're all friends here. AMD is going to get the same access that you do. And as you can imagine, that didn't go over well with Jensen, right? <laughs> so you're, you're treated as, you know, a VIP, uh, an EVIP, and then, then you're competitors sitting, you know, next to you. <laughs> so, uh, it happened to a couple other, uh, companies, um, yeah. in the FPGA world, Altera and TSMC were best friends. Uh, and then Xilinx came over to TSMC and then Altera, uh, left and went to Intel because it's really hard to differentiate when you have the same manufacturing process on an FPGA and, and it, GPUs are a little bit easier to differentiate. There's a lot of secret sauce inside those things, but still uh, having an equal level playing field in manufacturing um, didn't really sit well with with NVIDIA. Well, I mean, what I've also read, and again, some of this is publicly available. Some of this goes into rumors and behind the scenes gossip, but that NVIDIA validated their entire lineup at Samsung in addition to TSMC and they had them bidding against each other and they were threatening TSMC, hey, give us like your give us the inner circle like we want, or we're leaving your foundry. And TSMC said, Okay, bye. <laughs> and it sounds like, of course, again, some of their products are gonna have to be made at TSMC. Again, A one hundred is made at TSMC. That's their top end product for data center. Well, for certain tasks, not all of them. Um and I, I mean, honestly, from what I'm told from behind the scenes is that NVIDIA didn't expect TSMC to do that and that this is actually throwing them through a loop right now. Yeah, you know, uh, they did the same thing with Xilinx and Altera. Then they did it with Qualcomm. And, uh, you know, when Apple came to TSMC, Apple got even better treatment than Qualcomm. And, you know, they, oh, yeah. Apple used to buy chips from Qualcomm, right? And and they were competitors, Uh so and they sued each other, you know, so having Apple at the same table with Qualcomm didn't really uh, suit them. So they went over to Samsung as well. But um, it's not like they're moving products back and forth. So, again, you know, there's wafer agreements that are signed, mm-hmm. you know, two or more years in advance and there's NDA signed. So they can't actually design the same product to the same foundries. So uh, NVIDIA is is designing some products to TSMC and some products to Samsung. And, you know, they're going to do that because well, they, they can't can get... literally be the same. Right. They, there has to be some changes. It is a different node. Well, um, they they can't be the same team. The same design team can't design hmm. on Samsung and TSMC because there's confidentiality agreements. Um, so it has so... to be enormously expensive <laughs> or infeasible to design literally everything at both. Yeah, it's just not it's not done because it's really not feasible uh, technically or legally. So what they have to do is they have to decide on the process technology when they start designing. And so they get the PDK, they sign the NDA and they say, OK, this one's going here. But, you know, and NVIDIA has many different product types. Right. Mm-hmm. So 
Some of them will go TSMC. Some of them will go Samsung. I mean, if, if you go exclusive to one company, you don't have the pricing benefits of, of competition. And Samsung is known for really good pricing because, mm-hmm. again, yeah. they, their foundry business is buried inside. They don't have to make money. In fact, they probably don't because their yield is so bad. But, you know, at 10 nanometer, Qualcomm put their products over on Samsung and it didn't yield. And so Qualcomm had a big problem. They couldn't get the volumes that they were were requiring. So that that's a big problem when you deal with Samsung. So nobody's going to put all their eggs in Samsung's basket, I guarantee you. But you know, Nvidia is doing the right thing. They're they're, they're putting products uh, on TSMC and Samsung, keeping Samsung viable and in the loop. Uh, you know, because again, with with only one foundry, it, it could be a problem, especially when you have you know political issues. Is China going to take over Taiwan, and then will they cut us off from the semiconductors? I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, of issues uh, involved in this. It's not just which wafer is cheaper. So yeah, that's it's still mm-hmm. a constant debate uh, amongst gamers and the rumor, you know. So there's actually right probably a decent amount of PC gamers looking to buy an Ampere graphics card in the next few months listening right now to this part of the conversation with bated breath. <laughs> you are basically saying like if we hear like whatever the RTX 3080 is on Samsung 8 nanometer, or let's say it turns out it's on Samsung 5 nanometer or whatever, that you're saying, oh no, the entire thing is going to be on that. There's no special version probably coming from TSMC. No, technically it's it's not feasible and legally it's not feasible. Um, uh, so it, th- these things are designed from the ground up. Once they're designed, they're not gonna move uh, to different processes. It's just it takes too much. These processes are very different. And then you have the legal entanglement of NDAs saying that, you know, nobody that's seen the TSMC five nanometer can work on um, Samsung five nanometer for two years. Yeah. Yeah. That means gamers pay attention to whatever NVIDIA (laughs) announces in one week. That's what you're getting for the next year. Yeah. Do they always tell you which uh, process nodes is on or do they leave that to the rumor mill? Well, so I mean, like eventually, right? Like I'm sure it's going to be on the box when they're selling them in a couple weeks, or I guess it'd be from what I'm told, yeah, about about two weeks or three weeks from now for the 3090 and the 3080. The 3090 and 3080 are two different chips, right? So th- those could split fabs. 3080 is cut down from the 3090 based on what we know. So it's most likely, and that's what, right? I was wondering if they put, right, you know, the smaller the number, the bigger the die, the top of the lineup. So GA 100, 102, 103, 104. Um, the small, you know, so 100's there. Mega 800-millimeter <laughs> squared data center chip they're selling right now for like, you know, like a $10,000. But um, it's still, you know, AMD basically tells you like almost a year ahead of time sometimes, you know, RDNA 2 coming on 7 nanometer. And NVIDIA, we still don't technically know for sure what it's on. And we just know, I just have been told that it's been validated on Samsung. And yet I know the Quadro team at NVIDIA is saying that it's on TSMC 7 nanometer. So there's multiple people within NVIDIA saying different things. So it's becoming yeah. quite what, it's one of those... Um, crazy rumor mill things that no one's quite sure of yet, no matter how much information they get, because not everyone's saying the same thing. Yeah. Well, you know, Apple is exclusive to TSMC. AMD is now exclusive to TSMC. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, NVIDIA and Qualcomm are not. And so that, that'll that tell you something. But, uh, you know, again, uh, it's nice to see another fab in business. And 
Uh, I personally would like to see Intel uh, go back into the foundry business. I think if they did it uh, more modeled after TSMC versus, you know, telling you uh, that they're going to knock TSMC, you know, off the off the charts, uh, which is what Global Foundries did and Samsung did. And, you know, these these companies spent billions and billions of dollars trying to compete with TSMC only to fail. Um, you know, Intel only has to beat Samsung. Right. And they can become number two. And beating Samsung is not that big of a deal, in my opinion. Mm. But I would like to see Intel get back into the foundry business just so we have another option. Right. Because there's the, these are the only three yeah. companies that are going to be able to develop these leading edge processes. Right. Uh, Samsung, Intel and TSMC. And, you know, if it's only TSMC, that, that just is an uncomfortable business situation. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, uh, I, I know Global Foundry <laughs> has said, oh, we're going to focus on markets that you know we can cater to more so that's not going to take as much of an investment you know to get to the newest node but at the same time it's like well yeah but tsmc can also just make more money and double their capacity and then make it so everyone wants to use their node right and i guess let me let me bring up this question here from potatoes our life he says do you think that intel will go fabulous like amd and if so who do you think they would partner with the most well so uh no they won't go fabulous but uh, you have to know that Intel is one of TSMC's top customers. So mm-hmm. Intel makes chips at TSMC. They always have, and they always will. Uh, how many chips they make, who knows? Uh, but Intel has made a lot of acquisitions. So, for example, they bought Mobileye. Mobileye mm-hmm. is on TSMC. They bought Habana Labs. They bought Nirvana. They're all on TSMC. And they bought a bunch of mobile companies, Fujitsu, Infineon. They were all on TSMC. So, you know, why would Intel move these chips from TSMC to Intel when Intel's capacity is, is at a maximum, right? You know, they've been on um, uh, shortages and uh, I don't even know if you remember last year, you know, they couldn't ship enough chips. Yep. And I, I think they're pretty much, it's on allocation. I think they're pretty much in the same way. So here, here you have these CPU chips that have huge gross margins, whereas these mobile chips are, you know, small and, and not big margin. Why would Intel use their fabs for that. So Intel, you know, you you can call it fab light. I don't know what you want to call it, but they have always used uh, external fabs for different chips and uh, they will continue to do so. Uh, so, you know, the big question is, will Intel do a GPU at TSMC? And Intel pretty much said they were last uh, call, which is a big departure because usually it's chips not developed by Intel that were at TSMC, you know, acquisitions they made, but their GPU, they, they made themselves. And, and mm-hmm. on the call, uh, it was said that they, they were going to be sourcing uh, outside of Intel. They didn't say who, but, well, but you know, know, if you think <laughs> about it, uh, but, you know, it, it actually is very logical if you think about it, because they're, these are gaming C- GPUs, right? These mm-hmm. aren't the ones that are going in the cloud. These are the cost-effective ones, uh, you know, going into uh, the, the game systems and such. And if you think about it, uh, they're competing against AMD and NVIDIA, who mostly is on TSMC. And so they're going to have, you know, a good cost comparison, and it's going to come down to architecture. And that's right. not a bad way to be. Unfortunately, Intel's got a big ego. Is their architecture yeah. better than the other guys? Well, they probably think so, but you know, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> the marketing have, team definitely thinks so. Yeah, I have my doubts. But um, so in theory, they are fab light. They always have been. But um, if, if you think they're going to put their CPUs over to other uh, foundries, yeah, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, what I've actually been told is that 
behind the scenes, Intel may have already negotiated with TSMC to be their introductory partner for that six nanometer EUV thing. And if they want to announce that with a bunch of fanfare, that's one thing I've heard. That with actually what chip, though? With what chip? Um, I think it was their DG2 gaming chip or something like that. Yeah. So it'll be like early next year gaming chip. Here's the thing. This is the argument I've made all last year is that do I think Intel will go to other foundries for some of their chips? For sure. Do I think they may do some select products on a smaller node on a competitor's foundry to keep a performance crown? Maybe, but that they're always, at least for the time being, of course, going to need to use those fabs because they just have them. And if they're not using them, they're losing money, even if there's a performance loss. But I, I don't know. The problem is they continue to be so behind. And I get, but yeah, I guess that's what you're saying too, right? Is that no, they're going to have to solve their problems. I mean, there's, there's a reader mail here from Ed Drummer, or it's Emmy Drummer, 1990. He says, Is there a chance solving seven nanometer for Intel is just too important for them to ever give up? Is it that they actually need to solve seven nanometer at their own foundry? Or is it to not lose face to investors? <laughs> you know, uh, as I told you, uh, process technologies are delayed all the time. So, uh, especially if 22, you're Intel. No, everybody. Uh, Samsung, you know, the only thing is Samsung sure. will never admit it, right? They, they came <laughs> out. No, they won't. They won't admit it that it never, that they're not making almost anything on their seven nanometer EUV. You know, what's funny is they came out with 10 nanometer announcement and it was a couple of years ago and, yeah. and they, they called me and they said uh, they wanted me to cover the press release. You know, Samsung is a, is a sponsor of SemiWiki. Uh, mm. Just about everybody is. We have 60 sponsoring companies and and but, you know, we we we're not going to tell a lie. And I told him, I said, hey, listen, I know who your customer is. It's Qualcomm. They told me you're at 5 percent yield. I'm not going <laughs> to write this up, you know, because I can't in good mind, you know, uh, get on the bandwagon of you being first to 10 nanometer when you're not yielding. And, you know, they said, oh, well, fine. You know, but, you know, the thing, if you can look at SemiWiki, go back and yeah. Google Samsung 10 nanometer. We didn't cover it. I think it. I Refused. remember. Yeah, I remember that yeah. press release, too, and being like, OK. And then like a year and a half went by and I was like, where's the product, right. guys? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but Intel's not like that. Uh, and, you know, when they went to 22 nanometer FinFETs, um, they kept it secret. Nobody knew anything about it. It was a total shock to us that they had FinFETs in production. But if you look internally, you know, when you don't have an announced date, then if you're delayed, it's not a big problem, right? So uh, it was delayed. And 14 nanometer was two or three years late. 10 nanometer yeah. was a couple years late. You know, there, there was a couple of rumor sites that said, oh, 10 nanometer has been canceled. It's like, what are you kidding me? It's just it's late. It's not canceled. They, we're we're they... all late. It's late. It's right. very, very late, though, you have to admit. And, and and I think that from what I heard, that there were a very real discussions within Intel about canceling it. But, you know, a discussion doesn't mean a decision. Right. right. And, and I think I, I remember those rumors. Oh, 10 nanometers never going to be real. And it's like, well, I mean, it is real. You can go to Best Buy. It's up for debate how good <laughs> their 10 nanometer is. That's always up for debate. But I can go to Best Buy right now and buy a 10 nanometer laptop from Intel. So you can't tell me it's not real. Yeah, you know, the, the point is, so, you know, I grew up with Intel. They're, they're right here in Santa Clara. I know so many people there, but more of the people I know now from Intel are no longer with Intel. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a huge turnover, uh, but they've actually hired people from uh 
uh, Global Foundries and Samsung. I mean, they, they, they really have mixed it up. But the thing is, is that uh, Intel has always been late. You know, they give their best guess and it, it never works out because that's the way semiconductors are. You make one change in the process and the yield can drop, you know, double digits. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's just hard when you have transparency like this to really do these huge advances with doubling your transistor capacity uh, in between the processes. So, uh, you know, seven nanometer, they said it's six months late. And then I read in the news, oh, seven nanometers doomed, seven nanometers done, you know, seven nanometer will ever, never happen. And, you know, unfortunately, that's the click culture we're in. But the fact of the matter, and this is business as usual, they will finish seven nanometer. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't have EUV. Uh, you know, EUV is a big problem. Uh, TSMC has figured it out. They're the Are you one. sure they're seven nanometer? Isn't at least partially EUV? I thought they were buying those ASML machines. Um, that's, I believe that's going to be for their next uh, process. Um, you know, maybe I have that wrong. Maybe their seven nanometer is EUV. I think 10 nanometer was not. 10 nanometer is uh, not, no. Yeah, but um, yeah, so it could be EUV. You know, with 10 nanometer, uh, they introduced some new materials. Uh, they introduced mm. cobalt. And, you know, the new materials uh, don't always have the reliability that that you um, you hope they do uh, with EUV. Uh, TSMC did it right. They, they dipped their toe in. They said, OK, let's do three layers. See how that goes. Um, EUV is the problem is throughput. It takes so long to to EUV these wafers and mm-hmm. these machines go up and down. And so it's really yeah, I've more heard throughput. the yields on EUV is actually better and more reliable. It just takes forever to make them. Yeah, it's better because it's less complicated. You have less masks. So, you know, you have to use dozens of masks to, to make a, a wafer. Uh, and so it, it's a big uh, complexity reduction. Uh, so it's easier to manufacture. It's easier to yield. It's just these UV machines are still becoming mature. And so, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But um, I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up. Uh, we have specs on 7 nanometer. Uh, I'm not sure how many layers of EUV uh, it has. Uh, but um, that's the thing is you, you can start out with three layers and say, hey, I have EUV. Well, not really, because it's supposed to be, you know, 20 layers. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one. Yeah. So I guess people are now already. Uh, how do I, how would I put it? They're early predicting the death of Intel seven nanometer because they had so many 10 nanometer problems. And it's funny. I, I don't know what they delayed it to. I think they delayed it to 2022, which is funny because all of the information I had talking to people within Intel is that that thing was always going to be 2022 anyways, despite them saying it was late 2021. And I don't know. I mean, I think Intel will have seven nanometer by the end of 2022. I mean, if they don't, it would be a disaster, to be honest. Right. Um, well, you have to remember, they, they have different parameters. So uh, when they say they have seven nanometer, they better have a lot of chips made. Um, when, right. When foundries say we have seven nanometer, that means uh, our customers are ready to design to seven nanometer. That doesn't necessarily mean the chips are in production in systems on a shelf, right? So, um, you know, TSMC says they have five nanometer in production. What that means is they're making chips and they're shipping it to Apple. They won't actually be out on the shelves until the end of the year, right? Yeah. So that's kind of a different uh, environment. Intel, if they say they have seven nanometer, people want to buy chips and they better have a lot of them because people want to buy a lot. So uh, uh, I, I don't actually know when seven nanometer is going to be out, uh, but it's it's well, not dead. Neither it's not does dead. Intel. Yeah, Intel. Yeah, it's, it's actually it's out. not dead. You know, uh, 
it'll be out sometime next year, <clears throat> but probably not high volume manufacturing until. Gosh, Reese, why does Windows 10 Professional have to be so expensive? Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great windows and gaming keys you need at CDK Offers. I have a plan. Go to cdkoffers.com to get all the Windows Professional and Microsoft Office keys you need, and games as well. Add them to your cart, and you can even apply one of them city slicker promotional codes like Dashrank for 3% off software and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. I do have an account on this website, and it is ultra easy to use. Just submit your order, use PayPal, credit card, or Bitcoin, and go to Windows website to download Microsoft Professional. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They are a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. Uh, Sayonara writes in and he says, in July of 2019, Bob Swan publicly admitted that Intel was too aggressive with density scaling from P1272 to P1274, <clears throat> but also noted that our seven nanometer node will be out in quarter two of 2021 with double the scaling. Of course, by now they've delayed that to 2022. So it's clear that the progress is not being made at the rate Intel would prefer. How much of the delay would you attribute to the following? One, unrealistic goals. Two, poor risk and project management. Three, lack of investment and direction. Or are there any other things that you would point to that caused Intel's uh, delays for their new nodes? You know, I, I think Intel is still suffering from the uh, Moore's Law, you know, culture of we have yes. to double, double, uh, capacity, double the transistors every every year, every two years, you know, Moore's law said every year, then he said every two years and he said every month and really Moore's law was just an observation, you know, Gordon Moore just yeah. says, Hey, look at, Hey, look at that. <laughs> hey, look at that. Oh, it That's changed. what I, I keep saying to people too, yeah. is it's an observation guys. That's why my channel's named Moore's law is dead. But I <laughs> but, mean, you know, and you know, Intel does say is, it all the time though. Still. The funny thing is it, it's a good marketing term, right? Mm. Um, TSMC uses more than more. Oh yeah. Now <laughs> they do. Because they can, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so more than more means, hey, it's not just the transistors. We do packaging, we do this, we do that. And so, uh, you know, it's fun for us uh, uh, people to talk about. Uh, Moore's Law has a stroke, you know, uh, Moore's Law is dead. You know, the, the, the sad thing is Gordon Moore is still alive, right? So we, sh we should show him some respect. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just an observation, but it's a culture is built behind that observation. And in mm -hmm. Intel, anything less is a failure. And so, you know, they, they have a very different culture than some of the other uh, semiconductor companies that you see around. Yeah, I mean, their, that's their falling, right? When I, when I met some of them in person last year, obviously not this year, I haven't gotten to meet anyone really in person, but um, it was interesting how they kept, behind closed doors, they really didn't talk about it that much, but the managers did in any presentation with Intel, Moore's Law this, Moore's Law that, I, I remember saying it almost feels like it's a religion for Intel, Moore's yeah. Law. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to think it's killing them not being the best. 
It really, because they've been the leader, the leaders in this industry, you know, since day one. I mean, they, they helped found this industry. Right. But for, for, for them to say, oh my gosh, we're a note or two behind TFMC, that, that's got to kill them. Yeah. And meanwhile, right. uh, TSMC's <clears throat> presentation at Hot Chips last year, the guy walks on stage and says, I'm here to tell you Moore's Law is not dead. It's not even sick. And then just starts laughing, you know, showing like his comparison to Intel. Yeah, it probably, probably doesn't feel good. They said that again yesterday. Moore's Law is not dead or sick. So maybe that's their new shtick. I didn't hear it uh, before. I mean, but, it, uh, it got a lot of laughs. So I'm sure it's one good. of the best bits to go with. Confirmed SK writes in and he says, there was no way AMD was coming back if they hadn't gone fabulous, in my opinion. I mean, would you agree with that sentiment? Because I think there's an argument to be made that people saw AMD spinning off global foundries as an act of desperation. But in many ways, it seems to just have been an advantage, an instant advantage the second they did it. Yeah, it was very good for AMD. You know, you have to look at the finances behind that, right? So uh, the company who spun that out uh, was from Abu Dhabi. And Yep. They had a, they had a huge investment in A and D, and then they own Global Foundries. So I, originally, that really was a financial coup, uh, you know, a clever way to make a, a lot of money. But um, as it turns out, you know, AMD just wasn't able to execute on the, the fabrication side, and you know, they, they've had some big runs with with CPUs. I remember buying AMD 40 megahertz CPUs because Intel only had 36 and that 40 megahertz Mm -hmm. meant a lot to me at the time. But they really haven't uh, been competitive with Intel for for many years, right? The single digit market shares, uh, they they really were just around uh, the same reason why Samsung is around because, you know, you need an alternative. You need somebody to keep uh, Intel competitive. You need somebody to keep TSMC competitive and keep them honest about their pricing and stuff. So AMD got by on that uh, for quite a few years. Uh, and by the way, I'm a big fan of AMD, mm-hmm. um, but really they've had some catastrophic failures uh, on the architecture side, not just the manufacturing side. So oh yes, I think, we don't need I to think, talk about bulldozer. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I was there during bulldozer. Boy, I was uh, uh, I worked for an IP company that was involved in that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I've seen so many horror shows. Uh, and you sure. know the majority of the chips do not make it in this business. You just don't hear about those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know when T- when AMD went fabulous, it was a big deal. You know they got funding, they got direction, they could focus on on coming up with new architectures. And you know what is this uh, eight years? I, I don't remember exactly how long ago it was, but it is uh, a pretty big milestone for the company uh, from where they are today. And so yeah, you know they they had to go fabulous, otherwise they they would have died. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think um, it continues to be a huge advantage. I mean, what point number six here I have in the notes is this comes from your book, Fabulous, as well, just talking about, you know, how risky and how much of a kind of insane investment a fab really is. It requires absurd amounts of money and expertise. And then that fab is really only useful without an upgrade for like three years because pretty soon you need the newest node. And that there's just so much risk involved. And again, it makes me ask, I, we kind of covered it, but like, why do you think, and it almost is just Intel at this point, insists on keeping this risk, or I guess the better way to ask is probably would be, 
For how much longer do you think Intel will insist on keeping its fab business as its main manufacturing model? Do you think they will slowly distance themselves more and more and maybe eventually spin it off? Or do you think that's not going to happen within the next decade? Yeah, I don't think it'll happen in the next decade. The thing is, is that um, Intel putting their own GPU onto uh, another foundry, you know, most likely TSMC, is a huge step. Um, you have to realize that Intel fabs are very different. They are built for high performance products. They're not built for, for mobile, for low power, and that's why mm -hmm. they really haven't succeeded in that market, and that's why they use TSMC. So TSMC is not as fast. They, the transistors are different. Uh, you know, Intels are built for speed. You know, thank, thankfully, the cloud needs chips and speed more now than ever. So Intel is going to be making a huge amount of money on these uh, CPU chips. So I don't think they're going to stop that. But I think they will uh, put out more products on TSMC, especially when they have, you know, head to head competition from some of the other guys. Uh, but extremely high performance products, I think, will always be made at Intel. And, you know, you can't even get Intel to uh, stop with the Gordon Moore stuff, right? Uh, so how, how are you going to get them to stop making fabs? I just don't think it's ever going to happen. You'd have to wipe out the entire uh, employee base and, and hire new people. You're saying whether it destroys them or not, they're not doing that. No, I don't think so. I, but by the way, I don't think it'll destroy them. I think they'll, they'll come around. Very, very brilliant people over there. Pyroxide <laughs> writes in and he says, what happened to Global Foundries? Did they just get left in the dust and become irrelevant <clears throat> compared to TSMC, Samsung, and Intel? I haven't heard anything about them since their IP dispute with TSMC. Well, you know, when Global Foundries came out, it was a big deal, right? Uh, they, they were going to be the Global Foundries, so they would have foundries everywhere. And uh, one, of the, one of the drivers was the money from Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi wants to, you know... Uh, make their uh, revenue base broader other than oil. So they're you know, looking at other markets and other technologies. And, and semiconductors was one. They wanted to build a fab in Abu, Abu Dhabi. But you know, the reality is that's not going to really boost employment. Uh, having a fab in Abu Dhabi is really, there's no reason to, mm -hmm. uh, other than silicon's made from sand and you got plenty over there. <laughs> but you, know, you can't get your employees to go over there and such. So the global foundries concept was a very sound one. We'll put foundries everywhere. And, you know, they, they cut a deal with China. They put one in New York. Uh, and then they bought some from IBM, which was very clever. Um, you know, I, I worked with global foundries for quite a few years. I'm a big fan of theirs. But the, the bottom line is they could not produce a competitive process. They never, they never got one out. Um, you know, yeah. they, make, they made the wrong choice. It was always more leaky nanometers. or lower performance and clock is high despite being the same node in quotation marks. Yeah, you know, they they chose the wrong direction at 28 nanometer, you know, and didn't yield. And then they had to come back and, and make changes. And and everybody was rooting for them. Everybody was. Uh, of course, know, they're the underdog, you know. Right. You know, we all wanted alternatives. Uh, we wanted to go back to the good old days where you could design something and have four manufacturing sources so you can get a good cost because mm -hmm. cost is everything for semiconductors, right? But, you know, either, either here or there, it just didn't work out. And um, they they failed at 14 nanometers, so they licensed Samsung. But you have to think, I mean, you know, it's a license, right? It's it's not something you own and, and control. And Samsung can provide better pricing and, you know, you'll lose your business, right? Because Samsung doesn't need to make money on their on their foundry business if they don't want to. And then uh, Global Foundries try to do seven nanometer. 
And, you know, yeah. I pushed, I pushed them to skip 10. I said, Hey, don't do 10, go right to seven. You know, you got it. You got to get lock and step with TSMC, but, um, it, it didn't work, you know, and, and they have some very brilliant guys from IBM over there cause they bought IBM, but it just didn't work. So, <clears throat> you know, funding was, was turned off effectively, you know, Abu Dhabi put in, you know, mm-hmm. 10 billion, 20 billion and, uh, Global Foundries was very uh, well liked because they wrote some big checks to the ecosystem, uh, but you know they just never really got the customers and the volume. Um, so uh, IBM themselves used Global Foundry, AMD used Global Foundry, and mm-hmm. I think that's really something that held AMD back, right? Because they I, weren't I agree. on like, especially with some of their products. Yeah, and they didn't have the the manufacturing expertise that TSMC is giving them, right? So, you know, AMD's in the inner circle. So, you know, it, it's it's a good thing that AMD was able to cut that relationship off. You know, and I know there were financial ties. I don't know what, what all was involved, but mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, it, it's unfortunate. So Global Foundries is now what you call a boutique uh, foundry. You know, they're, they're doing clever things, FDSOI, power, power. Yeah, I mean, such. some of those nodes look actually pretty impressive, far yeah. more higher, like, re- like as some would say, real 12 nanometer. And it seems to perform... Pretty close, actually, to some of the smaller, well, I guess, again, it's all marketing, some of these smaller marketed nodes. It's just, I wonder where they can go next, right? You're not the best. And, if, you know, and they're not Samsung either. So, like, do you think they will try to skip to seven or five nanometer anytime soon? Or do you think they're just going to shrink or? No, they're, they're done. Uh, they're not doing any advanced node work right now. Um, my, my guess is, you know, they, they, they want to go IPO, you know, the, the Abu Dhabi people need to get their money back somehow mm-hmm. you know, or, or as much of, or some of some money back somehow. So either they'll be sold or they will go IPO or something like that. But, you know, the problem is, is, is it's not sexy in the semiconductor world, you know, unless you're doing five nanometer and seven yeah. nanometer and EUV, it's just not sexy. Well, what so, if they just call it five nanometer? <laughs> Apparently you can just do that. So <laughs> that's what I say. <laughs> uh, yeah, nobody will know the difference, but, uh, and they don't have the capacity, you know, they got a couple fabs in New York, a couple fabs in Europe and some older fabs in Singapore, but they, they can't, you know, come close to the capacity that AMD or one of the big companies needs. So, um, uh, they're, they're going to be, you know, a boutique foundry, just like tower jazz and some of the other folks, uh, there's a new company called Skywater that does fabs. They bought some old fabs. So there's plenty of business out there, but it's just not sexy. Well, that brings me to another question. So John O'Shea writes in and he says, is there anyone set for a comeback to challenge TSMC in the next five to 10 years? It seems like they're running away with it, with the successful five nanometer rollout, and they've got four and three nanometer nodes coming as far as we can tell on time. I mean, do you see anyone coming to challenge them? Do you, I guess, do you think Samsung will even, or? No. You think, see, you think TSMC is just in the driver's seat for forever? <laughs> or? I think uh, Samsung and Intel both have the ability to compete with TSMC. I just don't think they have the culture or the business model. Um, you can change that. That's the good news. You know, Samsung is a memory company, really. And Samsung makes yeah. huge investments in memory. And those investments, you know, overlay with logic, you know, not one to one, but, you know, it is it is very, uh, very complimentary. So Samsung is going to continue. Uh, Intel, of course, they're going to continue. You know, they have to. That That's who they are. Uh, could they be a successful foundry? Yes. And, and I tell them all the time they should 
go back into the foundry business, but they shouldn't go back in um, saying they're going to beat TSMC. You know, Intel went into the foundry business a couple different times, but the last time was uh, maybe five years ago with the new CEO, BK, and he mm. came out and said, you know what they said? They said the, the fabulous business isn't scalable. They can't go where we can go. I mean, it was a big hoo-ha thing and, and, and it really pissed me off. So people call me an Intel basher. That's when it started because I was just really offended that they, they took issue with the fabulous business model. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly hope they would fail just out of spite, but, <laughs> but they did. And now, now I, now I feel bad, but, uh, you know, if they would have come out and said, hey, you know, we're going to be the number two foundry, you know, you need, you need, uh, you know, U.S. based manufacturing, you need, you know, multi-sourcing, uh, that would have been a different story. But coming out and saying we're going to beat TSMC and, and they went to TSMC's top customers and said, hey, oh. they can't go where we can go. And, you know, it was just a, a business a strategy that, that just failed miserably. And, you know, Samsung is is the same problem. You know, uh, Apple was Samsung's biggest customer, and then you know they might have borrowed their IP, and you know so uh, IDM foundries have a have a certain um, taint to them, and but we could change that, and I think we're going to have to because you can't just have one foundry; it's just not smart. Again, at a certain point, I think you would just have <laughs> other people backing Samsung or Intel more eventually to make sure that there is another competitor. I mean, a lot of AMD's business, not all of it, they make, they, AMD's always made some good products in any given year, some, but I, at a certain point you think it was clear. I think some OEMs were backing AMD when they were at their lowest simply because they, I mean, they knew AMD had to stay together. I mean, there was even a rumor that during the, you know, when AMD was in its right before Zen, when AMD was at its poorest, that Sony was even thinking about buying a big share in AMD because they're like, dude, we can't, <laughs> we can't yeah. lose you. We're not buying our console stuff from Intel and NVIDIA. Yeah. You know, a certain percentage of AMD's business is because they're not Intel. And that is how Samsung is surviving now because they're not TSMC. Uh, mm. but you know, at some point in time, you have to bust a move and get out there and get business because you are better. You know, the value proposition is higher for your, for your customers than, right. uh, than your competitor. And so, so far that hasn't happened yet. And, you know, Intel was fun because, you know, they have a very big ego and they said, Hey, we can do things they'll never be able to do. Yeah, well, that was interesting until we got their PDKs and, uh, their PDKs didn't, uh, match up with their marketing. Right. So uh, I think there's opportunity and I hope it happens uh, because cost of a semiconductor is everything. You know, we have to get cheaper every year. And Samsung uh, provides some very attractive costs. I mean, you know, because they don't need to. Make I've heard it's way cheaper. Yeah. About I heard the last one I heard was 30 percent. And, you know, if you can save 30 percent per wafer compared yeah. to TSMC or is it 30 yeah. percent lower? Uh, 30% lower than okay. uh, Samsung, but still, some 30% is a lot if you're yeah. selling chips, right? If you're selling big systems like Apple, you know, uh, uh, laptops or phones that cost a thousand bucks, okay, it's not that big of a deal. But uh, for the chip guys, it's a lot. And so Nvidia and Qualcomm, they're they're good targets for Samsung, but they have to deliver consistently. And, and I'm sure NVIDIA will push those costs to the customer <laughs> and give us all cheaper chips this year. Yeah, I don't uh, think so. No, I don't either. Uh, DJ5K writes in and he says, hey, Tom, a very interesting guest. Does Daniel have an opinion on a fab independent metric for measuring a process density? 
I mean, there's different features, but Steve at Gamers Nexus talked about a paper a while back that proposed a trifecta of numbers that represents the average density of different transistors and their constructs. Yeah, you know, um, there's a guy on SemiWiki. Uh, he's one of our writers, uh, Scott Jones. And Scott does modeling for the semiconductor industry. And he's been doing it for the last 30 years. And he has a, a metrics that he uses for calculating density. And it has to do with the geometry of the layers, the pitch and 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 such. And so he he pitched this a couple of years ago. He said, "Hey, listen, this is the only way to determine uh, how uh, you know dense a, a, mm -hmm. a chip is." And he wrote some papers on it. I mean, if you go on SemiWiki, it, it's under Scott Jones, um, and he pitched it to Intel and and TSMC and such and and it makes some companies look better and it makes some companies yeah. look worse. And as it turns out, it makes TSMC look better and it makes Samsung and Intel look worse. So uh, nobody really agreed to it, but it's what we use. So every time there's a new node, Scott writes an update and he does okay. a landscape article and, and it's, it's the most read it's widely quoted. Oh yes. I mean, I've read them. It's like the yeah. only, almost only place you can go to really compare the newest nodes in a, I think objective and fair way. Like what are we really talking about here? Yeah, you know, the thing about Scott is, is he doesn't have a horse in the race and his business is modeling. And if his models aren't correct, he goes out of business. So he does a lot of reverse engineering and, you know, he publishes it on SemiWiki. And then if it's wrong, people will tell him immediately. So he gathers information. But yeah, he, he's the only unbiased source for this type of information that, that you'll see. Uh, but it's highly technical and it, it's it's really detailed, but it gives you numbers. You know, and he will tell you what the, the the logic density of a chip will be versus the SRAM count on a good day, mm -hmm. right? And so, uh, but really, he exposed people, you know, uh, to not necessarily being truthful with their numbers, and that doesn't make you the most popular guy, right? Yeah. QH Freddy writes in and he says, is there a growing rift between these leading edge devices and those built for more cost constrained sectors? How has design and verification changed in recent years with the rising difficulty of accessing the newest nodes accompanied by more difficult to implement features such as serial speed memory interconnects and specialized circuitry like internal voltage regulation and other non-logic elements becoming commonplace on leading edge designs? That's a big question. Yes. You know, uh, my experience uh, is heavily in the EDA world and IP world. So EDA is the software tools that uh, you use to develop semiconductors. And I've been involved in quite a few uh, EDA companies. In fact, uh, even today I work, I, I do mergers and acquisitions in, in the ecosystem. And so I've, I've been involved with maybe uh, 10 or so. And one of the big changes for design and verification was FinFETs. Uh, we, we were doing really well until FinFETs, but FinFETs is, is a very different uh, device, and it broke all of our tools. And it was crazy. You know, some companies were doing okay selling tools, but people didn't want to buy new tools because they didn't have to. You know, it's right. like, do you, do you really need a new GPU because the other ones run fine? Well, when FinFETs came out, tools started breaking. And that's when the partnership uh, with TSMC became critical because they helped us understand how we could fix our tools to, to manage FinFETs and the new processes. Um, since FinFETs, I mean, FinFETs was a complete re reset. We, we had to develop new yeah. tools, new methodologies, all new IP. I mean, it, it was, it was pretty, uh, big for our industry, we made a lot of money because Qualcomm and the other guys had to buy new tools, which, uh, you know, is hard to get them to do. 
But the, the problem we have going down, and, and this, is, again, is, is a nice deal for TSMC. TSMC is taking us down this path in half steps and smaller steps. Yeah. So we can, we can fix our tools and our IP um, in, a, in a much easier manner. You know, if you're going on huge steps like Intel and, and Samsung's trying to do, it, it's just very difficult. So, um, you know, the answer is, yes, it, it's hugely difficult. But uh, the uh, opportunity is for TSMC to help with their ecosystem. So they have the biggest ecosystem ever because they, they rely on uh, customers and partners to put in money. And, you know, I've experienced it as a customer and a partner. Uh, I've never actually worked for TSMC. But, um, you know, it's a collective of the most brilliant people yeah. you'll ever meet. Semiconductors are hard. You know, we all have masters. Most of us have PhDs, um, you know, in physics, electrical engineering, material science. Uh, we're, we're solving some very big problems. But this new cadence that uh, TSMC has with Apple really have enabled our industry to solve these problems bit by bit rather than, you know, a big old shark bite. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean. Just uh, like when you talk about how brilliant these people are, I mean, going to some of these conferences, um, you're used to maybe in your neighborhood being a pretty smart guy, but then you go to one of these conferences and it's uh, very humbling when you realize how much smarter people can actually be than you. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, they're, I'm, they're ridiculously I'm never, smart. Some I'm, never the, I'm never the smartest guy in the room ever. But uh, in some of the under industries, you know, that, that I uh, hang out in with my friends, well, I, I'm, I seem pretty smart, but not in semiconductors. <laughs> yeah. Snails writes in, and this is kind of switching gears a bit. He says, <clears throat> how soon do you feel that some of the growing Chinese fabs will become competitive in the global market? Do you see them as a more of a potential budget node competitor over the next three to five years? Or do you think Big Red is just going to hack its way to the top? <laughs> Big Red. Yeah. So um, I spent a lot of time in China. In fact, I was in China during the uh, outbreak of the pandemic. I oh, was geez. there at the end of January for... Are you I patient just, zero in America? Yeah. Can we blame you? Know, you? you know, my neighbors uh, were very wary of me, but um, uh, I did an acquisition uh, in China. And so we were there celebrating. And I was in a banquet with over 500 people. And the next morning, my wife texted me about the pandemic and told mm -hmm. me to come quick. Yeah. So, so I got home at the end of January and uh, I was quarantined immediately. My wife was sent home from work. Uh, she was quarantined and uh, you know, it was, it was very unnerving, but no, I've been tested uh, three times. I don't have the antibodies and I, I don't have it, uh, but mm -hmm. I, I, I could have been patient zero for my town anyway. Uh, but you know, uh, I've done business in China for 30 years and um, there's a foundry over there called SMIC. Mm -hmm. uh, I've Worked with them uh, in all different capacities, uh, and you know I, I had high hopes when they came about uh, because again I wanted more fabs uh, to, to keep the yeah. industry forward. So it's always in my best interest. I don't wish bad on anybody. Uh, I want there to be more choices. But I tell you, I, I worked with them for about ten years, and I was disappointed, disappointed, and disappointed. Um, they they borrowed things from other companies. They got borrowed in quotation marks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, here's the thing is a lot of people say, you know, China is stealing our IP and may maybe that's true. But um, we've been uh, borrowing each other's IP in the semiconductor industry since day one. Right. You know, uh, semiconductors really started with mm. with uh, Fairchild. And then uh, I don't know if you read the story about the traitorous eight left Fairchild and started uh, no. Intel. 
Um, you know, oh, wait, IP, maybe I have a little bit. Yeah. IP goes out the door with employees all the time. And if you look at people's LinkedIn profiles, which is a nice little spy tool to find out, you know, who's who, um, you can see that, you know, everybody's worked at Intel or Fairchild. Yeah. There's certain companies that have spawned entire industries. Um, and, you know, are you calling that IP th- theft? You know, it, it happens all the time, right? You can't control what's an employee's mind. But in this case, uh, SMIC actually downloaded documents, which yeah. um, th- that that's full-on theft, right? So yeah. they, they paid for it. TSMC used to own, I think, 5% of SMIC as part of the settlement. Uh, but, you know, even then they couldn't really be successful. And um, SMIC is, is at 14 nanometer now. They have a lot of TSMC employees, UMC employees. They have billions of dollars from the government. And they're still just not able to really move forward. So... Um, I don't think so. Um, will there have be fabs in China? Yes, there's sure. many going up, but um, will they yield? Uh, it's harder to yield than you might imagine. So uh, I think hopefully our trade negotiations will calm down after the elections and we'll start part you know partnering a little bit better with China. Uh, but um, I, I don't see a possibility of them making their own chips, you know, in the next ten to twenty years that are not remotely comparable to <laughs> like what TSMC is making. You mean? Yeah. They're at 14 nanometer, TSMC's at five, right? That's a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the way, and, and you can tell me, of course, that this is an ignorant <laughs> perspective. The way I kind of see it is, I mean, look, uh, they can probably keep up to a certain degree, but at the same time, if it depends how much <clears throat> of their innovation is literally from stealing or and how much borrowing they're doing, because borrowing is a good shortcut in the short term. But if most of your innovation is coming from quote unquote borrowing, then you're never really learning how to innovate on your own. And so the second you start isolating, right, isn't it just going to be, you're going to fall behind faster because you actually were depending on that borrowing the whole time. Well, it depends which employees you borrow. If you're borrowing production employees, you're going to be able to produce at that given capacity, but um, you're not getting the geniuses that are bringing in capacity. You know, I took a tour of China a few years back, and this is when they were going to do the memory thing, and, and they've already done it, but uh, this was before that. And they, they were showing me the facilities, and they said, this is going to be our Korean village. You know, we're going to have Korean restaurants, and <laughs> here's the housing facilities. And I, I'm like, well, I, I wonder where you're going to get those employees from, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then they had, a, they had an, a Taiwanese village, and it's just like, okay, well, that's pretty blatant. You're going to go after the, these certain uh, companies. But, you know... Uh, SMIC has had many, many chances to be a great semiconductor foundry, and they're not. So uh, that does not bode well for their future. And part of it is cultural, because I yeah. think the government has a lot of involvement in uh, their foundry business, whereas uh, Taiwan, the government is really hands off, you know. And yeah. uh, so I think I think that's that's a problem. It's but, almost like um, Taiwan isn't a communist dictatorship. It's not at all. I mean, I. That's what I'm saying, though, right? Is it's like you get someone like you know, (laughs) insert name, some giant genius who's worked on fabs before, and it's easier to convince him to move probably to Taiwan or New York or what have you than it is to within China, especially right now. And I mean, it's just something that I think I think you can hype personally, I think you can hype it up as much as you want, but is that problem still going to be there preventing a brain drain into China? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's been a brain drain from the United States and 
you know, in the semiconductor industry, when it first started, you know, the predominant uh, people were, were me, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, I, I, you couldn't pick me out of a crowd. Right. But um, it's changed. <laughs> right. And, yeah. you know, so uh, you can pick me out of a crowd and uh, very easily uh, because I'm an, an old white guy. Uh, but in in Taiwan, it's a very big blend. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, if you look at the Taiwan culture, um, you know, their their mannerisms and their culture is is not really Chinese. Um, it's no. got it's got a huge Japanese influence because Japan, you know, occupied them for a while. It's got some Korean influence because, you know, Korea occupied them. It's it's a very big blend. And when you do business in Taiwan, it's different than China, a lot different. And yeah, it, it's, it's more amiable to the American way of doing business. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. So if yeah, you get to work thing. between them, you know, it's probably more likely. It's, yeah. Um, Lewis, nineteen ninety-two, writes in and says tensions between the U.S. and China will continue <clears> to rise for, for the foreseeable future. Will we see more companies open chip manufacturing facilities in Europe or Africa, like TSMC is trying to do in the U.S.? Yeah, you know, uh, during TSMC's presentations, they talked about all their fab expansions and they're expanding fabs in Taiwan only. So the U.S. fab wasn't even mentioned, and um, wow. you know. Uh, so it, it it's not a done deal. Uh, nothing has been done, actually, other than a press release, you know, with with the current political uh, stature. Yeah. But <laughs> you have to wonder what what's going to happen in the election. You know, um, you know, TSMC is not going to sign up until, you know, that is resolved sure. because it's a long term commitment. The thing is, is that uh, it's going to be more expensive to manufacture in the U.S. because the Taiwanese government helps TSMC, they, they give them free land, you know, free this, free that, a lot of cost advantages. And I don't think the U.S. government has really picked up on that, or I don't know if they're going to be able to do that. I've seen things talked about, uh, bills for, you know, made in America, that would be great, <laughs> but they have. Yeah. Well, switching gears a little bit then, Andrew S. writes in and he says, what are some of the biggest hurdles to moving forward with more advanced nodes like five, three nanometer and beyond? The light source, the optics, the mass are all of the above. You know, it's all the above, but really uh, it comes down to materials that we use. So anytime we change materials, uh, there's always, you know, a, a possibility of failure. And this, this is what happens to Intel quite a bit. And this is why uh, TSMC has stayed with FinFETs for three nanometers. Um, Gate all around is, is a new technology, new materials, very clever. It's been in the... Um, conferences for for a few years. We've written about it extensively, but um, there's a lot of unknowns on how to manufacture that in high volume um, at a reasonable cost. So, you know, it really is all about the materials and we're finding new materials for different things. Um, You know, back in um, at uh, 1.13 micron, which was 10, Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, we we, we switched to copper for uh, certain layers and that was a catastrophe. That was the uh, one of the most delayed nodes we've seen uh, in the semiconductor industry, and you know we we just didn't see it coming. Um, we're we're pretty arrogant sometimes, uh, not as much anymore because we've seen some you Been know glorious glorious failures, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's the materials, and you know we're always discovering new materials. They look good in the labs, but you never know until. Uh, TSMC goes out of manufacturers. So when TSMC says gate all around isn't ready for high volume manufacturing, I I would tend to agree with them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And I mean, I guess 
I'll also throw in this question because it kind of connects to it. John O'Shea writes in and says, is there anyone but ASML making EUV machines or they have the market cornered? What do you think their outlook is like? I've, oh, and he's, he's, he's trying to ask as a, as if this is investment advice, which I think we have to legally say this is not investment advice. Yeah, so ASML has a has an interesting history. Um, EUV has been long time coming, and mm-hmm. you know they've been saying it's it's around the corner for the last ten years, and it was kind of a joke. Uh, there's a conference here in in Silicon Valley mm. called SPIE, and it really is a lithography conference. And so, boy, a, a, EUV was the most spectacular failure for for the longest time. But they finally got it right. And, you know, it was their partnership with TSMC that really uh, brought things to light, I guess, as you might say, uh, pun. Uh, But, um, you know, it it was a a huge failure and they've spent billions of dollars on Mm -hmm. this. Uh, They are the only ones that do it. And now that it's in production for the first time, by the way, full EUV, five nanometer. And, you know, Intel is going to do EUV at seven. But we don't know how many layers. And, you know, we talked about before, if you only do one layer, is that really EUV? I mean, you know, uh, uh, you can yeah. claim you can claim EUV, but not the case, you know, because there's about, you know, if there's 40 layers, uh, 40 masks in a, in a chip, um, only probably half of those could be EUV. And, um, you know, so we don't know how many layers they're going to use. But these machines are huge. They're expensive. Mm-hmm. And the throughput is not what you might have hoped. So you have to have a lot of these machines. And I think ASML has been selling as many as they could make for yeah, the longest they have. time. You have to like get in line to get one. Yeah. And by the way, memory makers don't use EUV yet. So memory mm-hmm. makers are at 10 nanometer, I think. So they're behind uh, the nanometer curve than logic. Yeah. But um, so you're seeing uh, all logic EUV production revenues from ASML, and it's through the roof. So wait till the memory guys get a hold of this stuff, and uh, you know ASML is going to do well. Uh, no, no investment advice. I don't own their stock. Mm. I don't think yeah. I do. Um, but uh, yeah, they they have it locked. And you know that's one of the things that the the U.S. government is doing is they're saying, hey, you can't send EUV machines to China. So oh, China doesn't right. doesn't actually have any EUV machines. Um, they're trying to make their own. They bought one and they were re- reverse engineering it, and that that didn't work well. I mean, these are very delicate machines. Yeah. So, um, yeah, EUV is is our savior right now uh, because it it reduces the reduces the uh, steps for semiconductors manufacturing. But you know, it's got throughput issues, and and they're going to need need a lot of them. I don't know how many TSMC has. They they tell us, but um, I think TSMC has more than anybody. Yeah. I know, and I know that Intel's bought some a couple of years ago, and they're trying to utilize them, right? But uh, I, all I've heard, like I said, right, all, all I've heard is that it's a line you have to get in, and that it can take years sometimes to get your order. Yeah, and you know, it, you know, we, we mentioned this with Intel. Its ego is a big problem. So they say, yeah, we're going to do EUV. Well, if if they only did four layers, you know, they might not be delayed. But, you know, mm. they said, hey, we're going to do full UV, 20 layers. So it's it's 20 layers or die, you know, and and, you know, they, they could die. Uh, theoretically, you know, the, the process could be uh, delayed. But, I think um, they'd be wise to try to do some type of eight nanometer first. That's like half <laughs> UV or something. I mean, that's what we've been discussing, right? That's what yeah. TSMC has been doing and it's worked. It's kind of common sense. 
Well, you know, you don't know it until you do it. But if you look back now, I mean, it's, it's just pure genius. And the only reason why TSMC did it is because Apple made them do it. You know, they, they mm-hmm. wanted a new process every year. And so, uh, but it has turned out very well for them. But, you know, for Intel to say, hey, you know what, TSMC has figured this out. I think I'll do what they do because it, uh, TSMC did that with Intel. They followed Intel, you know, uh, a few technology steps. But um, you have to be real humble to follow you know, your, your longtime competitor, right? So that, that, that's a difficult step. Yeah. The, the, meeting them in person, I get the sense that Intel's way more humble than they were a decade ago, but I don't think you still get the feeling that there are parts of the company that still aren't quite, maybe, shall we say, adequately humbled yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Results for life writes in, and he says, what is your view and knowledge about the emerging foundry business model from the likes of companies like Skytech, Tokyo Boki, I don't know how to say that group, of catering to startups and smaller customers by providing low-scale R&D production and custom manufacturing processes? I don't know if you saw this question or the links he put there. Yeah, I did. Um, I, I, I don't really get it. Those are really off-the-brand, off off-the-road companies. Um, you know, what people are doing now is they're repurposing uh, fabs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, companies like Cypress Semiconductor uh, had their own fabs and now they're getting rid of them. You know, they're 200 uh, millimeter fabs uh, and they're repurposing them and equipment, too. You know, there's used equipment on the market. A lot of it's gone to China. But, um, you know, uh, every, if you can find a niche, uh, go for it. Right. You know, there's MEMS fabs. MEMS are very big in the mobile business and in automotive. And sensor fabs are very big in, in mobile and automotive. And TSMC is not going to address those. Right. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, they are they are big mainstream uh, makers. They actually do MEMS, but um, uh, it's not a core focus of the company. So there's a lot of opportunity for these companies. The, the one I know is Skywater. So Skywater mm-hmm. took over some uh, fabs here in the U.S. and they're going after the government market, which makes sense because they're U.S. fabs, right? Uh, Global Foundry has some U.S. fabs, but they're owned by uh, a foreign country. Uh, IBM has U.S. fabs, but they're owned by a foreign country now. So uh, having U.S.-based fabs for aerospace and military makes sense. But it's a market niche, right? And mm-hmm. TSMC is not going to address that. It's just not sexy stuff, right? Yeah. Ian Clifford writes in, and this is kind of tying into what we were talking about with Intel. He says, I recently watched a video on Intel by an ex-engineer, Francois Pied-Noel, on the state of Intel. Do you think that things at Intel are as bad as he suggests? Or can the restructuring stop Intel from becoming the next GE? Which is a good <laughs> question, I think, too, because I've, you know, I, I interviewed off the record. So, you know, it's a, it's technically an anonymous source in one of my recent videos where I went through some quotes from kind of honestly political civil wars going on within Intel. I mean, h- how bad do you think it really is inside the company uh, with regards to those types of subjects? You know, I, I have a lot of friends at Intel, uh, mm. but I don't have any, any you know, direct knowledge. Uh, but most of my friends no longer work at Intel, like the the gentleman mm. you talked about. And I actually saw his video when it came out because it was kind of a big deal in Silicon Valley. Um, I don't agree with everything he said. Um, you know, he has a cultural issue as well. So, you know, he's he's not from the U.S. Uh, and uh, people are treated differently, you know, in different companies uh, from different countries. You know, you're, you're yeah. not necessarily part of the inner core uh, workings. Um, but 
you know, Intel has gone through a transformation over the last few years. Um, I did an article on this as I went and looked at all the CEOs they've had and, uh, you know, their education and everything. And one thing you'll find is that uh, most semiconductor companies have highly technical CEOs, you know, NVIDIA, uh, Qualcomm, uh, everybody. Uh, yeah. you know, these guys have PhDs or at least masters. And uh, Intel was no different. You know, you look at the uh, educational credentials of the first uh, few CEOs of Intel, and, you know, it's it's from uh, the highest uh, levels uh, that the world offers. Um, that changed a couple CEOs yeah. ago. And, you know, the last CEO had a, a bachelor's degree in chemistry from San Jose State. And, you know, that that was just, uh, to me, a disaster in the making. And I wrote about it. I said, hey, listen, how is this going to end well? You know, because this guy is not technical. And, well, he's, yeah. been at, he's been at Intel for 30 years. Well, that's not necessarily a, a, a good reference. And then the CEO now, I actually had high hopes for him because he was a financial guy, but he's a very clever guy, but he's not a semiconductor guy. And so it's easier for the rest of the company to, to you know, um, pull his leg, per se. You know, the less technical your executive staff is, the, the more opportunity for your, your uh, other uh, workers to maybe not uh, present the, the accurate picture. So I think that's probably happened at Intel. Um, the, the, the masses of, of executives are just brilliant, brilliant people. But unless you have a brilliant leader and one that really knows what's going on and one that can see through the, the, the nonsense, uh, I think that company is going to have trouble. Uh, you know, I look at companies based on their CEOs uh, to determine whether they're going to be successful or not. Mm -hmm. When people ask me for investment advice, so I spend a lot of time on Wall Street explaining them uh, what uh, companies do and such. And, and, you know, I did a tour about four years ago. I said, hey, listen, here are the top companies because of their CEOs. And one of them was yeah. NVIDIA. You know, and uh, I still get a Christmas card from these guys about NVIDIA because they made a huge amount of money. Yeah. Uh, but Intel, I tell you, uh, they really need to get back to their core business uh, with their executive staff. And, uh, you know, you got to start at the CEO. Yeah, I, well, what I've heard about the current CEO, Bob Swan, is that he's probably a decent guy to try to clean up and restructure the company. But that, and that some people, you know, disregard him because he isn't technical. He doesn't have a technical background. But at the same time, the truth is the truth. Like he can't stay there for very long or Intel's going to continue to lack the, shall we say, I don't know, the correct leadership for what it needs to drive forward again is, I don't know, like a technological innovator. Yeah. So, you know, TSMC had a keynote speaker uh, from uh, Ampere. So you, you mentioned them. Uh, you're, you're familiar with the company and their their chip. I was I was referring to the Nvidia architecture, code named Ampere. Okay. Well, there's a company called Ampere, and it's uh, founded by Renee James, who you know spent uh, 28 years at Intel, mm -hmm. and uh, she left Intel three years ago and, and founded uh, her own company, Ampere. Right. And it it does. I've uh, heard of this company though. Yeah, I have. It it does chips for the cloud. Right. And uh, it, it's, it's so funny is in her talk, I wish they would publish this because mm -hmm. it, I, I guess she didn't leave Intel on the best of terms because she mm -hmm. really had an axe to grind. And she never even mentioned the Intel name. She just said, you know, uh, this is the difference of, of doing business with TSMC. And it was just a complete knock on Intel. And 
Uh, and then she said she she's you know hired a, a staff of of executive professionals, the top of the top. And I went and looked at their executives, and they're all Intel people. I mean, th- this whole company is all Intel. I'm surprised she didn't get sued, or maybe she did uh, for taking all these people. But you know, I, I'm sure she's got a good shot at it. But she really did an advertisement for working with foundries, and you know, hopefully Intel watched this video or somebody from Intel watched this video because it really uh, made some strong points on some of the changes that they have to make. Yeah, I mean, the sense that I get is the engineers within Intel and a lot of mid and upper management are starting to get the idea right, but there's still. Man, when I was at Hot Chips last year in person, I was at the uh, Hot Wings at Hot Chips that like that like posh like ask Roger Kadori and Jim Keller anything, and both Roger Kadori and Jim Keller were, I would argue, too honest with their answers. Honestly, they clearly hadn't rehearsed for this, um, and, and they were just like, "Yeah, we think that idea is actually a bad one. Yeah, we think that one's a good one." But the more business side of Intel there <clears throat> seemed to have no. And this is a couple of years ago, so maybe things have changed, right? But still seem to have no perception of how bad the security problems were getting and how disillusioned some people they were working with or mad, right? Like you're saying, how mad some people that work with Intel are getting. And so that just concerns me because you say like, you know, earlier, oh, Intel will swing back. I'm not too concerned about that. But when we talk about it, it's like, sounds like they're going with an aggressive seven nanometer node again. It sounds like even when they get to that node, they'll be competing with TSMC three nanometer. And it sounds like we're still not sure they've figured out internally, you know, that they've come to terms with what's going on. So I I don't know if if I'm really asking you a question, but like, I, I think there is real concern there that they can bounce back. I think they probably will, but I think, I think people both shouldn't underestimate that they can, nor that, I don't know, there's definitely the groundwork laid for them maybe not coming back and kind of doing what happened to IBM. I mean, they're not going to go out of business, but never being the juggernaut they once were. I don't know if you disagree. Well, you know, um, I, I'm not sure if it's really for me to say. I, I have sure. high hopes. I have high hopes. Me too. You know, because I grew up with them and uh, I have the utmost respect for them. But I'm, I'm kind of like Jim Keller. And, you know, I'm a pretty blunt guy. And, you know, who left it, Intel? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I actually uh, have run into Jim a few times. Uh, you know, he, he started at Apple and then went mm-hmm. to AMD and, and then went to uh, Tesla. So he moves around a lot. Yeah. But he is very outspoken. But, you know, I mean, uh, I, I've consulted with many different companies and, you know, I tell it like it is because that's my reputation. And, and if the baby's ugly, it's ugly. It's just mm-hmm. not, not nothing to do about it. But, you know, Intel, uh, I, I've had some very harsh criticism for them over the last few years. And, um, you know, sometimes it sounds like they're listening to me uh, and then sometimes it doesn't, you know, yeah. but when they when they first came out with the FinFET, they called it a trigate. Well, the industry mm-hmm. word is FinFET, you know, so they tried to rename, you know, an industry term and and they failed. Right. And now they're coming out and saying, oh, well, our super fin technology. Yes. Well, that's, that's just dumb. And, you know, they, they probably paid a, a marketing consultant a million dollars to come up with these stupid names. Uh, but, you know, it, it tells me that they're not learning their lesson. Right. And Mm -hmm. they need to play nice in the ecosystem if they want the ecosystem to play nice with them. You know, and if you write some big checks, you'll get our attention, but you're not going to get our our allegiance. You know, Uh, you're not going to get our 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 best effort. So uh, I think Intel still has some ways to go. 
But if I had to call it today, I would say, yeah, you know, probably 20 years from now, they'd be IBM. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I, again, and it's like, I hope they don't, but at the same time, I suspect if they did Apple or someone would take their place, right? Like someone's going to come for that money. Well, frankly, AMD might, and then Apple may become a competitor. I don't know. But again, well, rampant speculation a little bit. There. You know, if, if you look at uh, it's it depends how AMD is going to do. You know, AMD just didn't do anybody any favors uh, the last few years, but now they're doing quite well. So, mm-hmm. you know, without competition, companies tend to get uh, stagnant. It's just the way it is. Right. Because uh, you don't have anybody pushing you. So AMD's pushing them on one side. Plus, there's, you know, dozens of companies that are doing chips for the cloud, like Ampere. Uh, there, there are AI chips for the cloud all sorts of stuff that are that are going after Intel's business. So, um, you know, at some point in time, they're going to be forced into a very unattractive competitive uh, position. It hasn't happened today. So, mm. you know, that they, they can float on, the, t- the Titanic can keep moving because there are no icebergs uh, ready to sink them. Um, but AMD is, is making good strides. You know, I, I actually didn't believe it would happen. So, uh, uh, but it has happened. And there are so many chip companies out there shooting for them in the cloud that something's going to happen. But right. it's, it's not in the next five years. It might be 10. And I don't care what uh, nanometer uh, Intel shipping. They're going to change names and call it different things to confuse us. But, um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is the cloud is everything and Intel owns it. So, you know, until that change changes, they're going to do quite well. But in a competitive market, uh, com- Intel would fail. There's no doubt about it. So switching gears again a little bit here, um, looking around, I, I get the sense that we will keep using silicon. I know everyone keeps hyping up all of these other things, whether it's like carbon nanotubes or graphene. I think graphene probably looks like a likely alternative eventually, but I think we'll probably keep using silicon until at least 2030. And I've seen, you know, some people say for many more decades, I mean, and, and that brings me to my question. In your opinion, how much longer do you think silicon will be the standard or at least be almost every, almost the only material people are using? You know, that speculation has been made for years now. You know, it, we, we've come to the yeah. end of the line, you know, for silicon dozens of different times. And, you know, as I said, there's some really smart people in this industry. And, uh, you know, this is way above my pay grade. I, I understand nanotubes and nanowires, and that is coming. Mm. Uh, but, you know, there's still going to be a silicon aspect to it. Uh, but, uh, you know, w- what we've done is we, we keep dodging bullets, right? We're just so smart, uh, this industry. And, and every time they says, somebody says, oh, you, you're not going to be able to do this, uh, people, you know, take that as a challenge. And uh, it's not just an ego thing, though. Just huge amounts of money are at stake here. Yeah. It's billions and billions of dollars. And that attracts good talent. So I don't think anybody is going to be able to say with a straight face that uh, silicon has come to come to an end because we can reference back, you know, a dozen different times people have said that. I mean, yeah, I, I would say if we get to three nanometer, we've already proved a lot of those people entirely wrong. I mean, many people said we couldn't get below seven or five nanometer. Um, I, I, I think, um, I mean, the obvious problem is, look, I, I, and I don't have the statistics or the material properties pulled up, but it's like graphene can get significantly hotter, right? It, it can probably clock way faster and it can probably become like half as big as silicon. I don't believe it can shrink to like, at least again, right? They think theoretically, we don't know for sure, like 10 times smaller. It's maybe just half as big that we can clock way, way, way higher. 
due to its uh, thermal conductivity properties. But the thing is, the first graphene chips are probably not going to be the best. People have to remember we have like, you know, decades and decades of optimizing and optimizing silicon. So the problem with going to graphene would be that it doesn't just have to be better at the base level. It also has to be better than the hyper, hyper matured and specialized silicon we have now. And I see that as being, I really think what we're going to just find is 3D stacking solves a bunch of our issues anyways. And we're probably just going to use graphene here and there for a while. Yeah. So this question was asked of TSMC and, um, you know, of course they didn't answer it because mm-hmm. they're not going to tell people. Um, but you know, the, the big, the big question is what are we going to call it? Right? So you go from three nanometer, which is FinFET to two nanometer, which is carbon nanometer, carbon nanotube to one nanometer. Well, what, what's after that? So the marketing guys are going to have to come up with some clever names, right? Cause we, we've been riding on the, the Oh, I'm sure thing. Samsung will at least market something as half <laughs> nanometer. You know, they will. I don't know if TSMC point, would do that. 0.5 nanometer. So uh, we'll come up with some other name, but uh, it, it's not going to be as easy as it's been since 16 nanometer. You know, you just, mm-hmm. just go down a couple here and it really means nothing. Right. So, uh, uh, what what really means is the materials you use. But TSMC did say that they were working with high mobility channels and some 2D materials and carbon nanotube, uh, most certainly, uh, and nanowires for the two nanometer node. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's coming within, within the next five years, certainly. I mean, it's in the labs. IBM has some working prototypes that they can't manufacture. Uh, and the race is on because it really is you know, billions of dollars at stake here. So, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I mean, if someone does it, they just have, you know, double the efficiency of their competitors. And that's a, that's huge. That's the dream. Uh, but you know, the problem is you have to ha- manufacture it at a very high volume at a very low price or a cost-effective price to succeed in the semiconductor industry. So that, that's the, uh, that's the other side of the uh, sword, right? Yeah. Results for Life writes in and says, what is the prevalence of open source instruction sets and architectures like RISC-V and Open Power on the market today? Are they still mostly in R&D and a handful of products like Alibaba, NVIDIA, Sci-Fi, and Kendrite? Or are they gradually being integrated and adopted by more chip design houses like Broadcom, Qualcomm, Samsung, Miatek, Apple, AMD, and Intel? Yeah, you know, that that's uh, a good question because, um, you know, I, I did the, my second book on ARM. And so, you know, re- really uh, what happened was people stopped, you know, re- the ARM was the only choice, right? And this is just mm-hmm. another example. If you only have one choice, um, things aren't good. You know, ARM maybe is not as competitive. Uh, their pricing is changing, et cetera. So RISC-V came in to really keep uh, ARM at bay. Right. Um, but it really has caught fire. So, you know, uh, the, the benefit I have is with SemiWiki is I get to see who reads what, when, and where, and what trends. And and we cover ARM, of course, and we cover RISC-V. And the RISC-V traffic is huge. And I get yeah. to see where it comes from. And it, it's not in the U.S., by the way. The bulk of the traffic is from India. It's from Asia. China is huge on, on risc Risk five because they've had real big problems with ARM and and the different uh, uh, legal issues and and the contractual. But ARM is really expensive, uh, so you know the question is, can they get the type of performance that ARM does? They they don't yet. Um, so ARM is the leading edge sixty four bit you know uh, embedded processors. Uh, Risk has a good thirty two bit. They're still working on it, but I tell you, everybody's reading about it, and I think it's it's going to come, uh, but it's probably going to be a few years out before people really start making money on it. 
but you know, it's just, it has to happen because there's only one game in town and that's arm. And they got bought by sun. They got bought by, uh, you know, a much bigger company, Sunsoft, and I think maybe they've lost and focus. Nvidia might buy them. I don't. Th- I don't think that's going to happen. To be honest, you don't with think you. so? Oh, what you think? Apple's going to let that happen? I don't think so. I mean, one thing. Well, I've heard two things. Right, I've heard that Apple already had the license up to a certain level where they can just split off and make their own derivative of ARM. That's actually what I've heard too. Is that Apple considers this a start of their own architecture, anyways, and that they only need the licenses and they have the most recent one, and that should be enough for a while. So that's one thing I've heard. And also, um, I guess what I would say is. If I was Apple and you thought that was a problem, I would just buy out a large stake of ARM so that NVIDIA can't directly control it or something. But Well, ARM's strategy was to go IPO. And mm-hmm. I understand that because the, the mothership needs cash. You know, they, they made some unwise investments in, you know, WeWork and Uber and such. Uh, we so work. going, yeah. So uh, going IPO is is a big deal, and they could do that, and it doesn't even have to be in the U.S., right? They could do it in China or Japan or anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the thing is, is that a lot of companies depend on ARM, and they do. You know, Apple and uh, Qualcomm and other companies they license the instruction set, right? So they they can get away with licensing. But again, there's a lot of collaborative work that's done between ARM, TSMC, and Apple to get these uh, chips actually manufactured. Right. Mm-hmm. So ARM is one of the partners. Every every test chip that goes out at TSMC has an ARM core on it. And, you know, TSMC depends on it because if they can't manufacture ARM cores, then a lot of their customers yeah. are be really sad. So if there's more to it than meets the eye. Uh, if NVIDIA bought it, TSMC would not be happy. Uh, Samsung is a huge ARM user, right? They, mm-hmm. They're oh, yeah. uh, from multiple points of view. So I don't think the industry will allow any one company to buy ARM based on the, you know, the, the legal and the competitive issues or the restraint of competition issues. Uh, but I do think that, you know, people could buy pieces of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Apple wouldn't have to do it directly. They have henchmen, right? They have Foxconn and, and a few other companies that would, would do it. Um, but, you know, would the U.S. government allow a China, you know, company to buy yeah. on? Yeah, probably not. So it, it's a quagmire, it really is. I don't see it ever happening, but it's good news. Everybody's going to click on it, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen uh, <laughs> many clickbait videos about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the only other thing <laughs> I can say about Risk Five is one thing. And again, I keep referencing last year's hot chips because that was the one I got to go to in person. Is it's if you brought up risk five, well, I didn't have to. That's all anyone brought up. If I asked anyone their opinion on like what's the thing coming that people are talking about that you're the most excited about, everyone talked about risk five. And I've seen people talk about how risk five is this efficient architecture, and that's why everyone needs to use it. But it's really it's I think like you said, it's it's really not about its efficiency, although that's important. It's it's that it's open. It's that anyone can design their chips around it and people are so hungry for something that isn't a minefield of legal fees, right? Yeah, it, it's not ARM. That's that's the biggest attraction. And it's right? not x86. Right, just like AMD's biggest attraction is it's not Intel, right? So there's, there's a well, lot of- Well, it used to be. That. I mean, I'd say they're better now, right? They are. Most of the time, but- They uh, are. I think they probably doubled their market share. So part of their market share is because they're not Intel, you know, 
single digits, but uh, now they're actually winning on merit, which is, is very nice. I don't think uh, Risk Five is winning on merit yet. I think it's got a little ways to go. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. All right, I got one more reader mail here. Again, everyone, if you support on Patreon, you can submit questions for guests. Doomberry says, oh, this is a great guest. Do you have any accessible resources to learn more about semiconductor engineering? I have read your articles with great interest, but I get a bit lost when you start talking about process characteristics such as polypitch or gate length. Where should we start? Well, uh, my book would be a good a good start. Um, and, you know, you can get these books on SemiWiki if you're a member. Uh, they're free PDF form. So mm-hmm. in fact, um, my original book, I actually just updated it. So there's a 2019 version. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even available on Amazon. It's just available on SemiWiki. And it is actually available in Mandarin now in China. So it's it's uh, a huge, huge seller per se. Uh, but um, yeah, read the books and, you know, you can ask questions on SemiWiki. Uh, we have forums and, uh, you know, Tens of thousands of people read this. In fact, you know, I got the idea for SemiWiki from some of the gaming sites. You know, I, I uh, participated mm. on their forums and stuff, and and uh, it, it was kind of a Wild West type experience. Uh, and they didn't really uh, understand what I was saying. Yeah. This was back in 40, 40, 40 nanometer, and people were blaming TSMC for bad yield. And I tried to explain to them. I said, "Well, yeah. here's what." Here's yield. You know, if you make some bad decisions, your yield's going to take it. But anyway, uh, so SemiWiki is similar. So we have a forum. You can ask. Uh, it's moderated. So, uh, you know, it's it's very clean. Uh, you're not going to get attacked. But if you have questions, <laughs> just ask them there and uh, or comments in the in the blogs. People are very nice. Uh, they will answer your, your questions. But, um, you know, it, it's not uh, the huge traffic site like Anantech or something. Uh, it's really focused on people who are actual semiconductor professionals, right? But we're, we're happy to answer questions from anybody. And I will say, you know, as I scan through this uh, book in preparation for this interview, it actually is, um, yeah, I never know what to expect, right? <laughs> from a, schol- a scholarly written book, but yours was very, very readable. I, I-, I know that and take that as a lot aren't. I'm just being honest. A lot of them are not readable, but yours really did read like a novel. Like it was easy to read and very interesting. Yeah, I had my wife uh, edit it uh, and I figured if she could understand it, uh, anybody could because she's not technical at all. And, you know, I actually wrote it so my kids would figure out what all this is about. But really, the, the net result is they, they said, hey, dad, how come my battery doesn't last longer? You know, I mean, it's like, kids, I don't do batteries. But uh, <laughs> do, you, do you like those clickbait articles you see? Uh, like Stanford makes battery that lasts a thousand times longer and charges 10 times faster. It could be in your smartphone in two years. And I'm like, yeah. I think I've seen this every two years and it's still not in my smartphone yet. I mean, it's yeah. getting better, but. No, I, I like the ones that say Moore's Law is dead. I I <laughs> love my the favorite. Ones that say Moore's Law is dead. That's my favorite clickbait. <laughs> uh, yeah. You yeah. know my the original name of my channel actually Moore's Law has been dead, but I decided oh, it's too long, and it's just because I can't believe we even talk about it. It's not about Moore's Law. It's about there's so many ways to scale performance. I can't believe we still obsess over this observation. That that's honestly where my name comes from. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm really happy for it because uh, you know when I started writing, uh, nobody really cared about semiconductors. It, it was uh, uh, really bothering me because they were so important. So I started writing, and, th- and when the Moore's Law thing came out, I, I was really annoyed by it. I'm like, oh my god! 
But now I'm so happy because now so many more people are interested in semiconductors just because somebody died, you know, Moore's Law <laughs> dead. So, but you know, hey, uh, it got you to read and it got you to help understand and and, you know, uh, SemiWiki is actually the number one uh, website for semiconductor design. And, uh, you know, I mean, w- we have millions of people that read this site. It's just uh, it's just humbling. And uh, I don't think we could have done it without, you know, clickbait. <laughs> no, and that, that that's the truth. Well, I mean, I think we got through all the notes then. I really don't have okay. anything else to bring up. I don't know if you have anything else you want to talk about or if you want to plug your books and, again, plug the website one more time. Yeah, you know, we started SemiWiki uh, 10 years ago. My son and I uh, did it. He was uh, on break between his uh, bachelor's and master's degree. And we just sat down for the summer and created this site. And it was just an amazing experience. And we never imagined it would be so successful. Uh, but it is actually, you know, a, a thriving company. But the reason is, is there's so many of us involved. You know, we have over 40,000 registered members. And to register, you have to give us your LinkedIn uh, profile. So we know, oh, you know these, these are real people. And, uh, you know, the amount of knowledge we get from just writing and reading these articles, and then we get to look at the analytics behind it and see, you know, what's real and what's fake. You know, um, I saw Tesla guys on my website uh, six years ago. And so I knew Tesla was making their own chips, right, because yeah. of what they what they read. And and Apple, Apple's a big reader. And I look at what they read. And sometimes they, they focus on a piece of IP and then then they end up buying the company. So I can look back and say, oh, now now, now I know why they were doing this and that. So that type of analytics is really important. Because, you know, unless you understand how we got to where we are today, it's really hard to predict where we're going to be tomorrow. So, you know, that's the bottom line. Yeah. Well, uh, again, your book, it's uh, I don't know the full title. I just remember your book's name is Fabulous. What was the full title? Fabulous, the Transformation of the Semiconductor Industry. All right. Um, I think that's where we'll stop then. Thank you for coming on. I'll put all of that in, in links in the description. And uh Yeah, I mean, thank you for your time and uh, have a good day. Thank you, Tom. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website, Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are solely responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. The Discord is only at $1, and at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Law's Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit.
and give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Matthew McMullen, Tello, Steen, Benny Berlin, Justin Yunt, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lynn and Jim Bollocks, Joshua Alvin, Muhammad Al-Khwari, Frederick Lau, James Crasted, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Brad Medlin, Phil S., Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, TSPCFS, Chrysantine, Night Rogue 77, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo Kinkilo, Fatboy Diesel, Daniel High, D. Kunky, Christoph Novak, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Sexy, VI Pass, Sadler Sadler, Isaiah Gosner, Alethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Jacob Barber, Exoti, Hector Santana, Matthew Lane, Joe McMorrow, Jan Rauner, Robert Duck, Street of Full, Allie Robertson, Eric Johnson, Jonathan, Job, Evan Dingle, Dominic Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Sam MacArthur, Total Silo, O'Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Kerry Baldino, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Ivan K., Trevor Powers, Sayonara, Alenia, Joshua Stavis, Daniel Nishpal, Franco Frederick, Hardware Numbers, Alex Harris Steele, Dark Rain 2049, Leighton Perry, Matt, Carlos Valdez, Carnivore Bear, Macto 226, Zabra Zaber, Zlicky, Matt and Porsagji, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Garan 